Hey everybody, welcome to We've Got Ward, a doof media podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss Ward, why those return to the world of parahumans. My name is Matt Freeman, and if you know time as well as I do, you wouldn't talk about wasting it. And I'm Scott Daly, and I dare say you've never even spoken to time. It's a... It's an Alice in Wonderland reference for those of you that, that don't get that. Uh, this is the weekly podcast where Matt and I eagerly dive into Wild Bo's world of light orb therapy, timely trains, and alien-based death powers as we analyze and interpret this ongoing web serial. This week, we're uh, ending arc 11 blinding mm-hmm. with chapter 11.12 and then confusingly skidding into the end of arc 12. S- something arc 12 something uh-huh yeah that's what we're doing yeah this is a little curveball <laughs> yeah structurally speaking uh-huh victoria has has to collect herself and her team after the events of the horrible events of the last chapter they come together and decide what happens to, what it has to happen next and if she's even capable of it and then next we move into the mysterious arc 12 with 12.z and we learn all about the incredibly sane March and her nefarious plans. It's a couple of big chapters, Matt. What I'm did just, you think of them? I'm just first going to highlight your use of the word collect when you said that she collects her team. Oh, you you caught you you caught on to that, did you? That Very was yeah, that yeah. was good stuff. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, okay, oh, man. Okay, <laughs> this is what this is one of those weeks where it's like you get the first chapter and you're like, holy shit, this is going to be something that is both really hard to talk about and we're also going to talk about it forever Mm -hmm. and it's and it's like one of the best chapters ever and it's very unusual and there's just so much to say about it and then on uh, and then uh saturday rolls around and then another (laughs) another chapter which in a completely different way uh hits all the same check boxes of of being just something where you're like well okay i guess uh I guess Wild Bill wants us to have a long episode this week. <laughs> yep, yep, that's what we got. Um, I, I actually, a weird thing happened to me today as I was you know, really diving into the second chapter and working on finishing up our prep work. Um, I had gone into the preparation for this week saying 11.12, loved it, loved this chapter. Like, I liked the March interlude, but man, you can't get better than 11.12. And then as I really started sitting down with this interlude, with this March interlude that we're going to be talking about, um, I realized all the things it was doing and how it was doing them. And it was one of those moments where really analyzing the chapter just made me absolutely fall in love with it. And I think I was bombarding your G chat, uh, <laughs> the, the entire day, just being like, Matt, I think I'm starting to like this chapter 10 minutes later, Matt, Matt, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, my appreciation of the second of the, of the interlude like skyrocketed once I sat down and not, not to say I didn't like it before, um, just that my appreciation for it like just rose. And I had this, I, I think I removed it, but I had this moment in our, our script that was like, I liked the March interlude, but 11.12 is really what I come to this book for. And I, I had to get rid of that because <laughs> it's just not, it's not true anymore. Um, so, yeah. yeah, I mean, a couple of great chapters. So much is going on here. Right. So much to talk about. Um, so many like like open ended things as well. Yeah. You know, while we're up front talking about reactions, um, I like my my first comment in the discord after reading the chapter was the, this story is going to give me a fucking heart attack because <laughs> um, like I was having like a, an uncomfortably um fast heart rate for the entire March chapter. Cause I was oh, like, what's oh goodness, what's going to happen? Like I was so anxious about what was going to happen. 
and we can talk we're going to get into it obviously and talk about sure. like why um why i was anxious and, that, and that's going to be fun um but yeah just like 11.12 harrowing um 12.z uh uh heart attack causing my my word would be delightful delightful yeah <laughs> in, in the weirdest way possible yes let's let's just let's just go ahead scott let's do it i mean we got so much so much to talk about so much to do so we might as well just jump right into it all right so we open up with 11.12 and uh we resume the harrowing ordeal that is this story uh with victoria trying to support her team in the aftermath of the maiming and dismemberment of most of their number and I think this is one of those chapters where the right approach to discussing it is probably to sit back at the start and talk about how the chapter is structured mm-hmm. and what it's doing overall. Um, structurally, it seems to me that the chapter is taking the time to check us in with each of these characters and to show how they're reacting to this event. And then in many cases, we see how the characters react to how the other characters are reacting, uh, usually by trying to take care of each other in a variety of ways. And of course, Victoria is our protagonist, point of view character, and person whose whole personal struggle centers around like a history of having been trapped in a body twisted by powers. So we're obviously focusing a lot on how she specifically is handling all of this, both emotionally and behaviorally. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, part of the reason why I started this episode with this lengthy high-level preamble is that I kind of don't really like want to dig into the details. It's heavy. It's painful. It's something that almost feels gauche to talk about in like analytic cold terms. Um, but that said, ultimately, I'm here because I love Wild Bo's storytelling and I want to understand better how he does it. And to do that, we do need to approach the chapter in more detail. Yeah, I I, I think that's wonderfully said. I don't have too much to add to that. I, I, I mean, obviously, I love these books. I love every bit of them. And I, I'm I'm going to love talking about March's interlude, but... This this chapter like is, I think, why I've committed to spending four years <laughs> in this world, like between Worm and, and Ward, four years probably in this world and spending multiple hours every week talking about it. Um, and, and like you said, we can break this chapter down and talk about it analytically um, and, and we'll make jokes about it because that's what we do. And we'll laugh um, and we'll feel uncomfortable with the uncomfortable parts. But I don't think there's anything we could say in this analysis that would properly capture the emotions felt while reading this chapter. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the emotions felt when you when you opened this up or clicked it open and read it the first time. The, the best we can do is, as you said, just try to understand why we felt those emotions, why the text made us feel this way. We can't we can't describe that feeling, um, but we can try to understand it a little bit. Exactly. I honestly was was struggling starting out um, this, this the chapter summary because everything I wrote, I was like, this is so like, like I don't know, cold, like it doesn't it yeah. doesn't work. And I was like, OK, let me let me think of like remind myself why I'm doing this and, and then, sit, you know, approach it with with that with the right mindset, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, let, let's get into it. And I think we'll I think we'll do our best to do justice to it. So first we check in with the two heartbroken Juliet and Darlene. Juliet is putting out a vibe of uh, restrained fury, and Darlene is reacting to that vibe by being very stiff. Juliet tries to space out by listening to music, but her headphone cord is severed, and Victoria comes to the rescue for the first time in this chapter by offering 
Juliet her headphones. Yeah. And this is one of those like small, small moments, but those small moments matter type of things. Like Victoria does not know Juliet very much or, or Darlene for that matter. I mean, she spent time with some of the heartbroken, but not these two. Right. And so she doesn't really know them. She doesn't know anything about them, really. Um, but she's still connected to them through this trauma, this this thing that just happened. And, and we open this chapter by really like the first lines of this trap chapter are almost drawing a connect a direct link back to the last chapter. She says to Darlene, I'm back. That wasn't a minute, was it? And I think that shows that she's she's fulfilling her promise to Darlene. She said, I've got to go away, but I will be back. It will be less than a minute. It is very, very important to her to to fulfill that promise to her and then we move forward with that with this this tiny little gesture to Juliet and what I love about this and and this is true here and I think through the rest of the chapter as well like Victoria in the back of her mind is like conscious of okay her phone battery is going to run out eventually like she's using this as a distraction tool and her phone battery is going to run out and um and we have to plan for that happening. And you could argue this is just a tactical move. And I think Victoria makes that argument herself um, that this is just like, OK, she's going to run out of this. And then what's going to happen? This could be bad. But I think it's a little more than that to me, at least, because, you know, we've talked about a few times about how Victoria, like her greatest goal throughout this entire story. And she's repeated it several times, has been to stop what happened to her from happening to other people. No more glory girls. That's what she said. I, I don't want this to happen to other people. And while that yes means hopefully preventing people from being chopped up or mutilated or, or abused in any kind of terrible way, um, hopefully preventing that stuff. But I don't think that's all of it because a big part of that, a big part of what happened to her was not just that she was mutilated by Amy in this horrible way, but then after that, she was left alone. She was abandoned. Her family abandoned her um, in those two years. So so I think part of this whole no more glory girls thing isn't just preventing people from getting hurt like like she did, but ensuring that if they do. I can't leave them alone. And and it, it, we saw that with her, with the navigators. We're seeing that again here where she has to be there to help them. She has to. And later in this chapter, she's going to be thinking about. You know, I, I'm, what if I leave? What if I leave here and go fight somewhere or help something? And then she says she can't. And, and she, she lists a reason she can't for very tactical reasons, right? She says like Byron can't be in charge. He's not used to it. Um, these other girls like could get in trouble and I need to be here. But I think it's more than that. I think it's the core of who she is that, that leaving these people alone is something she can't do. Yeah, no, I think it's a huge part of her personality to take care of people um, yeah. And, and, and to be a leader. I mean, it's interesting to me that she has all of these hats that she wears. She, she has all these labels she assigns to herself. What's interesting to me is that two of the major labels that I would give to her would be, one of them would be something like, like a caretaker, like some, someone who looks after others and the other would be leader. And those aren't necessarily the same thing, although there's overlap between them mm-hmm. and she doesn't, think of herself that way but that's right clearly what she is and there's moments in this chapter where um her leadership is 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 absolutely evident and just her her natural leadership qualities are are showcased here because she's under even more emotional duress than she was during the navigator incident when, when we you know we talked about how she was so poorly off that she like wasn't thinking 
like her, her her narration was different. Yeah. Because her like it was like her internal thoughts had just shut down and she was just reacting. Um but she's still functioning and and leading here. And in fact it's almost like she's more functional and and um she's still having a rough time but she's more functional than she was after the navigator incident. Yeah, because she has to be, right? Like yeah. the, I mean like that's that's the whole thing. And I, and I love that you said that like she she would not list this as one of her leadership qualities. Like if we asked our discussion question for this week to Victoria, um, comforting and care would probably not be one of the things she would say, but you're absolutely right. That's what she does. And that's what she slips in. And she doesn't really even think about it. She just does it. Oh, you need headphones. I have these headphones here. Oh, you mm-hmm. need someone. It, it isn't so important for someone to be here. I'll do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll go talk to Sveta. I'll talk to Byron. I'll talk to Ashley. Um, I'll call people on the phone. I will take all this on me and Mm -hmm. it's, it's fantastic. And it's, it's, I mean, it's tragic in a way because like it all comes from, uh, from, from from her trauma, right? Like that's the the source of this need to do this for other people is the fact that she's experienced this herself and she knows what it's like. Um, and I mean, but there's, there's, there's some value in that. I think that, that you've been through this terrible thing that then, you know, you know, that people need that people need you and, and kind of how they need you in those moments. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, so we move on, you know, basically we're following her around as she, as she sees to the various people. So next she sits next to Darlene and then Darlene leans onto her with her head on Vicky's lap and her back pressed against Aiden's. And there's this moment where all they're doing is sitting there and it says, uh, my heart was pounding like I was in the middle of a fight. My thoughts were chaotic, and I was just sitting, trying to figure out how to handle this, worried that I was somehow doing this wrong. Yeah, I like this a lot. I think it's really important that Wildbo chooses to give us this window into her head, right? Because, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, she's she's automatically fulfilling that caretaker role, but that doesn't mean she's, like, just good, right? Like, she's <laughs> she's a wreck. Mm-hmm. And and not only is she, like... like terrified because this is bringing back memories and but she's she wants she doesn't want to screw up like she she doesn't want to hurt these people she doesn't want to make it worse and even though you you feel like you've gone through this before and you and you know maybe what people need you're still not sure um and and like look i'm gonna talk about carol here for a sec and i don't i don't want to um excuse carol's behavior but it's not hard to see Carol having this same point of view when looking at Victoria, like standing there and knowing like, I don't know how to handle this. And, and I'm terrified that I'm going to handle it wrong. Mm-hmm. And of course, Carol's response to that fear is to succumb to it and get the fuck out. Right. That, I mean, that's, that's what Carol does. Victoria has a very different response to that fear. And I think that's why she's probably a better person overall, where she chooses in that moment of fear, that, uh, that moment of terror and to not get out, to stick it, to stay in it and still try to help out. Um, and that's that's the difference between these two characters. And um, yeah, maybe that'll matter down the road. Yeah. I mean, I, I like that when she hands, you know, Juliet, the the headphones, it's it's in this like halting way. Like I I know that what I'm offering is like a paltry, meaningless thing, but like it's not actually, you know, mm-hmm. like like somebody is missing a limb and you offer them your your earbuds. Yeah. You're like 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 in yourself, you're like, oh, my God. The, like what a what what a, a meaningless gesture this is that I'm making but for that person they're like oh that's all I needed right now right right yeah exactly um, so uh, next lookout appears and she's basically just kind of grimly soldiering forward walking on her severed stump Ugh. um and 
as she kind of talks to Victoria and, and Darlene, it's interesting because I kind of took her at her word here. Like she's, she says that she's legitimately way more upset that her friends or, or, or rather my take is that she's legitimate, legitimately way more upset that her friends are injured than she is about the fact that she is injured. Um, and, and like when she says that she's been hurt worse than this, I take it to mean um, she's felt way worse than this, at least about herself. Yeah. And, and like, yeah. yeah, she's having a hard time about being physically maimed, but it's, like it just seems like her she's much more concerned about how everyone else is doing. I think you're right. I think I I mean Victoria almost basically says as much when she says or not physical pain mm-hmm. indicating that the type of pain she's referring to is is something else and I think that's probably absolutely correct. Um I love I love this moment where she walks by Chicken Little and there's this really moment of like really tense where you think she's going to sit down next to Chicken Little and then it's going to be like him with these two girls on either side of him and everyone's in bad shape and you can just kind of see this like very bad place Darlene just like popping off and you're like oh god is this is this when our our love triangle like like escalates to something terrible but then Kenzie moves past Chicken Little and she sits down next to Darlene um and 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 it's like this moment of yes she's concerned about him but she's thinking practically and she's reaching out to someone else and um not to say that the love triangle conflict is over but uh not today so and this is the first kind of instance to my mind of of what we're going to see throughout the rest of the chapter which is these people who who may have their their disagreements or their points of friction um just coming together and yeah absolutely setting all of that aside to to try to be there for each other and to try to help each other um i mean there's going to be a bunch of places actually where we point that out explicitly coming up um yeah this and, is the first one and and i think that's why you know as tragic and and gruesome and horrifying as many of the moments in this chapter are you leave this chapter and therefore this arc with with this tinge of hope right like this tinge of like there, there's there's bad stuff on the horizon we'll get into it next chapter but like there's this bit of of hopefulness to the fact that these people have come together um regardless of their backgrounds like these are two teams that used to be on opposing sides and now at least temporarily they've come together and are supporting each other and yeah i mean that that makes you feel a little good yeah right it's a it's a very I don't know, special mix of, of harrowing and heartwarming because it's not like you walk away from the chapter, like, Oh, that's, that's so wonderful. But like, but neither are you like, um, well, that was just sick. And I just feel sick. Like there, there's a, there's a, there's a definite positive feeling that comes from it. You're you're right. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's, you're right. It is weird because you leave the chapter with Victoria basically like wrestling with this idea of murder mm-hmm. and and this this murder that she feels she might have to commit and so like that's not a good thing to leave the chapter with but it is not like totally hopeless either right right um so we find you know that kenzie's hands have been mutilated and she can't even take off her own helmet so she's not exactly doing fantastic um as victoria takes off kenzie's helmet kenzie babbles a bit revealing something closer to the degree of distress that you would expect. Um, and then of course, when her helmet is off, we see that she is smiling. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this is one of those sections that I get excited about despite its awfulness. Like I get, it's awful and just like the best fucking way ever. Like she's, she, Kenzie's like babbling about how much she's sweating. And then the helmet comes off and Victoria immediately notes 
that uh, there's wetness on her cheeks and it's not just from smile from sweating. Um, you know, she's been crying and the, and the mixture between crying while having this big smile on your face is like so off putting and she wants to comment on it. But like the whole smiling thing was something told to her in confidence. So she can't comment on it. And I mean, like this isn't in the text itself, but you wonder like as Kenzie's like babbling about um, about how much she's sweating, even though there is truth to that. You wonder if she's trying to cover for the fact that she's been crying. Mm-hmm. And so she's like setting this up as like, yeah, I, I've been crying. So like if you see any wetness on my face, that's definitely it's because because I've been crying and like she's trying to hide that emotion a little bit. Um I don't know if that that's supported by the text or anything, but I, I just I liked that interpretation of of like part of the reason why she's really pushing this idea about sweating. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I didn't I didn't take that reading. Um, and it, it's definitely interesting. I'm trying to think whether I prefer it to just the idea that she's just fixated on the fact that she's sweaty and, and gross and and that it's it's sort of realistic to be fixated on something that's basically irrelevant when you're um in an emergency i don't know that kind of rings yeah. true to me also I mean, yeah i mean i wonder if it's possible for it to be both i don't know that yeah. might be a stretch but yeah. I, I like that interpretation too like yeah. I, I think that is very much of a, a human thing to do and, and also a kenzie thing to do yeah. is, is focus on this one insignificant um part of her look mm-hmm. yeah absolutely um so the three uh work together that is um victoria and, and kenzie and darlene to attach Kenzie's brain interfaced camera helmet to Aiden's head. Um, and his injuries still have not been described, uh, which it means we can still imagine them to be maximally horrifying, but at least now he can see and hear and thus communicate. Yeah. I, let's hope that this injury never goes described. I think you said last week, Oh, well, they'll surely describe it next chapter. And thank God we have not done that. So uh, let's just, let's just, just do that forever. It's just building up the anxiety though. <laughs> But I mean, I think you're right that we we do have two corners of this love triangle teaming up to help the third. And it, it, it is this this I think as horrifying as all this stuff is, once again, it is this moment of, OK, working together, um, helping each other, supporting each other, leaning on each other, um, you know, putting aside any awkwardness or uncomfortable thing they have between them to help out the person that they both care about. And that's uh, good. Yeah, it's yeah. good. So now we get the first break uh, in this chapter, uh, of which there are several. Um, so what do you think this means, Scott? Why do you think Wildo's using this structural um, feature so many times in this chapter? I mean, I think it, to me, it's just like a reflection of Victoria's state of mind as we move through the chapter. She's kind of reeling and her consciousness is like, to me, like only coming into focus during specific scenes where she has a specific goal in mind. I think of the jumping from from part to part without um, really linking those together is uh, reinforces this disjointed, broken feeling that's going on right now. You're left like y- you keep jumping to a new part of a new scene. And in the first couple lines, you're having to catch up with what's going on because it's like you've just jumped into a new scene. You're like, OK, who's she talking to? What's going on now? Who is doing this? And that like that momentarily that momentary feeling of confusion and distortion um, I think really serves to get the reader into like Victoria's mindset and the, and the tone of the scene. Yeah, I, I agree with all that. I, I was also wondering if, if maybe it's like, you know, after a certain amount of being tired and overwhelmed, you kind of 
zone out and you know right right we we know victoria is especially prone to zoning out but like i wonder if this is part i mean this is kind of a different way of saying what you're saying is like maybe she's actually kind of like spacing out for a second and then and then she just feels compelled like oh okay i guess i uh yeah it's fed i need to go check on sveta now and and like it just kind of and then and so we catch up with her when she's doing the next thing because there was no continuous chain of inner monologue between those two events. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if I'm like over interpreting it, but I, I see that as being a realistic way of depicting what it's like to be in that state. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you're right. Um, I mean, like I think movies use a similar tactic all the time, right. Where they just kind of cut between events um, mm-hmm. in, in, in a intentionally abrupt way to get, to make you feel like you're just kind of, uh, like like floating over everything and you zone in and focus on one thing and then just kind of drift off and then mm. zone in. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's a great way of showing like the rise and fall of consciousness almost. Mm-hmm. So after this section break, uh, Victoria is now with Sveta who's hiding down a hallway so she doesn't kill anyone. And she's more upset than we've seen her in the story because of everything that's happened. And while it didn't hurt her physical body, they destroyed her prosthetic body, which to her yeah. is roughly as important possibly even more important. Mm-hmm. Um, I like, she says here that she needs to mourn here, which is, I mean, very, very specific language, right? The, the, that body is dead. It was part of her and it's dead now and she's mourning it. And I, just this, this simple line that she says, I really liked it. Like just, just it's, it's so tragic. Like it's awful. And I, 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 it, <laughs> I don't, I don't like, I'm so, I'm so, so worried about, about Sveta. Um, and, and like this, all I could think in back, the back of my mind during this whole scene is like, oh my God, you just lost the only body you have. And Weld is going to break up with you because you don't have a body. And now you don't even have this prosthetic body. And it's just like, oh my God, oh my God. And, oh, it's, it's really draining. Yeah. Yeah. No, like it, I was actually, I guess I'm like reflecting on it. I was thinking, like I, I stopped at this point in the reading and was just like thinking about how, how much this would suck. And then like yeah. on a more, like on a more meta level, since we're, you know, since we're doing this analysis, I was like, isn't it kind of amazing that I can have that much empathy for like the person with the lionfish tendril body yeah. who has lost her prosthetic body, which is like a, a thing that I could like, it's so uh, unnatural for a human to imagine, but I have no yeah. trouble putting myself in her position. Well, and I think like, again, this ties back to character work because mm-hmm. you think back to the first scene where uh, Victoria saw Sveta at the at the the therapy group session and saw that she was in a body and just how like proud of that body Sveta was and how happy Victoria was for her that she had that and like that's even if you don't consciously recall that as you're reading the scene it's in the your subconscious somewhere like it's in the back of your mind um, because it's part of your your image of the character, and that just makes it even all the more heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's so much wrapped up in it, and it's yeah, yeah it's a terrible, terrible thing to happen to her. Yeah, worth mentioning here uh, before we go on though. Sveta says, uh, "I could have killed them. Um, I had a split second to choose, and I chose not to." Um, Victoria says she made the right call. Um, but we do have to mention this, and, and we've been doing this throughout the last few chapters, Matt, is this idea of the consequences of holding back or not holding back, 
what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I like that here it's, it's less like the literal consequences because she makes a good argument. Like if I had re- reached out with my tendrils to the whip, it could have snapped them off and then they would have like gone crazy on their own and maybe hurt people. It's a good, it's a good reason. Um, but these are not the literal consequences. These are the emotional ones because Sveta states here, I think I made the right call, but it's hard to know that I could have maybe stopped this, that I, that I could have stopped this from happening, but I chose not to. And I, and I think what this is doing is like laying the, the, the seeds for what most of this chapter is doing um, is is Victoria as she's taking care of these people wrestling with this idea that she maybe knows what has to be done now and she's not sure if she's capable of doing it. Which is which is these people might have to die and I might have to be the one that does it. Yeah, right. I mean, it, it seems it seems too much to ask someone to make that call uh, in, in a split second, like she says. Right, right. And so now we're putting Victoria in this place where it's not a split second. It's it's a when we catch them, is this a fight where I'm going to plan to kill them, which is a completely different state of mind. Right. Um, and, right. And and. and yeah. <laughs> And I love that because she uses the word premeditated here. Mm-hmm. Like, and that's a very, like, that's a very powerful word that she she's like, if I decide right now that I'm willing to kill these people and I do kill them later, then that is a premeditated murder in her head. Mm-hmm. And like, and the implications of that on, on Victoria's whole sense of, of morality and sense of, of being a, a hero, uh, is, almost too much for her to handle. And that's one of the big things she's wrestling with throughout this entire chapter. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, you could even say that this is a, this is a, well, no, I don't think you could say it. I think this is certainly true is that this is a, a character moment that's been set up for this entire story. Yeah. Like the idea of, of her being someone who's going to intentionally kill someone in a cape fight is something that I think, whether whether it was foregrounded or not was always going to be one of her major like character moments you know yeah i think you're right throughout the whole book but if you look back at this arc specifically mm-hmm. i think we've been leading here throughout the whole arc like if we remember we started this arc with a with a frustrated victoria that just didn't understand why people like why things weren't going better like she was trying hard and things just kept getting worse and she was getting more and more frustrated and having to make more and more uh, concessions in the name of of hopefully doing the right thing, and now we've we've let we've taken that person in that state of frustration and and thrown them through the ringer, and here they are on the other side with um with maybe the truth right in front of them, the the necessary thing right in front of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. So yeah, we continue to move around the room or the the rooms. Uh, we see Floor is handcuffed to something, and her legs are quote unquote stacked near her. Uh, she appears to be content with treats from a vending machine. Yeah, I, I love that word stacked. I'm glad you pulled that out. That was um, a very specifically used word in there to give a very specifically horrible image. Mm-hmm. Um, and it worked perfectly. It just sticks in your brain. I think uh, even before I read this chapter again, that I re- I very distinctly remember reading that part because mm-hmm. it just it's there. Yep. Um, and this is, I think, the first moment in the chapter where we see Victoria mention that that floor is held at bay by a stack of treats that that she's being distracted by this stack of vending machine snacks and then she mentions Juliet has her battery of her phone and that's going to run out eventually and and I think you know the gentle worry of these things to me 
um, are putting like a self-imposed time limit on our protagonist. Um, she's here. She's trying to collect everyone, um, but she knows she has to make a choice and she knows she has to make a choice to a plan and, and she knows she has to make it soon. Um, because like the, the things that are holding some of the people off are not going to last forever. She's put a time limit on herself. What are you going to do, Victoria? What are you going to do? You don't have forever to decide. What are you going to do? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that. I, I, I w I'm in that place of, of thinking like, uh, is this one of those moments when we are to believe Victoria's, uh, thoughts as point of view character and narrator or, um, are we meant to to question them? Because like thinking about the heartbroken, like she she sort of sees Juliet and Flora as both just like absolutely unpredictable and, and it like yeah. enigmatic and um and like we know that Flora like can be corralled because I'm pretty sure like Imp managed her back when she was being a professional shitfucker upper. <laughs> right. Um I don't know. Like so, so that's the thing is I'm like are are Juliet and Flora actually as like um, <laughs> hazardous as as Victoria's thinking? Um, I don't know. This this wasn't something that like distracted me while I was reading, but but I I was I am kind of like um, she doesn't seem to know how to handle them, so she's she's almost like um, putting up like buffers so that she doesn't have to really interact with them, which is still a, a mode of taking care of them. Yeah, but um, it's it's just interesting how she doesn't quite know what their deal is and and so yeah. she 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 helps them in a way where she can can kind of keep them at, at, at arm's length right she like she make sure they're taken care of in mm -hmm. a very specific kind of way that doesn't involve her taking care of them um yeah which you're right is understandable she doesn't she doesn't know how to handle these people she doesn't know them very well right um she has enough trouble handling the people she does know very well yeah 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 i'm not blaming her I, I, yeah. I just, yeah, I, just I, I, I was just like trying to figure out like is she, is she, is she right? <laughs> Maybe she's <laughs> I mean, exactly a right. Little bit. Yeah, I yeah. mean, like the thing about the heartbroken is you can tell that they're all like super agitated and yeah. these guys that were already guys like kind of on the edge and now that their, their family has been hurt. And the one thing that they seem to, to value above all else, even as they joke around amongst each other is this idea of family. Um, yeah. they, they, they're going to really want something. And she, I, I, I just, I do think she need she feels like before all the shock wears off and people are going to be like, okay, it's time to fuck some people up. She needs her mind made up. She needs the plan. And that's kind of something we'll see throughout uh, the rest of the story too, is when she's talking to people on her team, she'll, she'll, she'll say things like, trust me to come up with a plan. I'm working on it. We'll find a way. Um, and that's like part of like, I think her, you know, simultaneously like putting off making a decision while also like um, putting it on her that mm -hmm. she's going to be the one to come up with. She's going to be the one to decide. Yeah, no, that's true. I like that dichotomy. That's interesting. Um, so the the three teams that they sent to the three locations were red, yellow, and blue, right? Mm -hmm. um, I hope I'm right. Uh, yeah. and, and weren't those our important symbolic colors, basically? Like we had fire and heat. We had gold and sun. We had ice and water. And, and we kind of mapped them onto like red. I remember we were never quite sure if like red and gold and orange were all like the same or if they were discrete symbols that symbolize different things, yeah. but there was definitely blue, you know, blue is its own sure. symbol. And I just, I was, I thought it was interesting that they picked those three colors for the three teams. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're the primary colors. So is, uh, 
I guess they are. They're the the primary. Yeah. No, but I mean, I I think that's an interesting line of thinking, though, and I'm sure we could spend 20 minutes like looking at each member of the team um, and seeing how it breaks down along that line and if there's anything symbolically interesting there. But uh, it's going to be a long episode already. So I'm going to do that thing where I ask the listeners to do our job for us. So if any of you want to take the time to break that down and see if there's any fun symbolic stuff going on there, go for it. Um, we encourage you guys to do that. Yeah, and and what does it mean that Victoria's team was the only one that didn't get uh, destroyed? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if English teachers ever do that in like class, right? Like <laughs> an English teacher is just like sitting there preparing for school and goes, "Huh, I wonder if this is like a symbol to," and then they like look at the clock and their stomach rumbles and they're like, oh, "I really want a sandwich." You, child student do this yes find the symbol for me i require an essay i will tell you if you're right or wrong <laughs> i bet they do sneaky english teachers yeah so next she checks in on byron who isn't physically injured but he's still reeling um and it's interesting because you can see he's trying to problem solve but th- that it's like halting and he's indecisive because like each tiny decision is so heavy uh, and victoria immediately supplies a pillar of leadership detailing what needs to be taken care of uh, in the short term. Yeah. And I, uh, going kind of go, going back to our broken section structure, um, I, I, one, like, like you kind of talked about at the very beginning of the chapter, one of the things that those section breaks are doing is kind of allowing Victoria to put on a new metaphorical mask with each person she's talking to and like be uh, whatever or whoever that person needs to help at the time. And, and and no offense to Byron, but he's very new to this whole leadership thing. And it's it's this weird thing where like people look to Capricorn for leadership because Tristan takes charge so often. Um, so like he's automatically put into this kind of leadership role because people are very used to saying there's Capricorn, Capricorn, what are we going to do? Um, so Byron finds himself in this role that he's just not very comfortable in. And she is there to kind of help him up and uh, and. And, you know, support him with with making leadership type decisions on her own. Right. Um, it's very it's very like intuitive of her. I really like it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, it's interesting because like I'm really not trying to be hard on him because this is a very understandable reaction to this type of situation. But um, he he just kind of wants to be told what to do. And, right. and, and yeah. she is there to to be that for him. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think as we'll see as we go through this chapter, I think there are some things that Victoria wants to be told to do as well yeah 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 uh so next is swan song she's missing one leg at the calf uh there's another injury to to a a different leg Uh, one of her prosthetics is damaged i don't know i don't think we know if this is causing misfires or not yeah Um, not not yet at least yeah but i mean it's you know she's she's not quite as um uh, attached to her to her prosthetics as as feta is to her to her body but it's um, like the, the the idea of the prosthetic being damaged is definitely a serious thing for for Swan Song. Yeah, I mean it is a symbol of the choice that she made mm-hmm. um, to 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 be different from the old damsel. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Tristan has apparently like off screen endured horrible pain to make a peg leg for Ashley. So. Yeah, I did find it interesting that it specifically points out that that was Tristan that did that. Yeah. Um, it's poor Byron. He's just overwhelmed. <laughs> right. Well, and, and that's well, so like this is one of actually my favorite like moments of um of the characters taking care of each other. Like you can just like like Tristan phasing out just long enough to make 
like a, a complicated little peg leg thing that can fit over Ashley's leg and like check that it's okay while, yeah. you know, suffering from his body being cut in half. And then like just, just that scene wasn't even in this, right? Like we didn't see that scene, but I have no trouble imagining everything having to do with what was required to get Ashley a peg leg made out of Tristan rock. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and I, I love this because I want to like use Ashley as a jumping off point to talk about why uh, this chapter works so well, mm-hmm. um, because we have we have this moment where Ashley's sitting here and, and Victoria describes her. She says she sat in a way that had her leaning back, trying to look casual and failing utterly with the darkest of looks in her eye as she surveyed everything around her, the various kids in particular. We also mentioned here that she's not on any pain medication um, because she's worried how they will, uh, you know, interact with the medication she's already taking, which is a good reminder that she's on medication still um, with this. We saw this way back in the beginning of the eclipse interlude, but I kind of in the back of my mind, I don't think we ever talked about this, but wondered like with with the whole prison like being destroyed and her kind of just being in this limbo of free, but um, only because we just can't like put you anywhere type of free. Um, is she still like getting regular medication? Is she still taking it? Um, and, and this kind of answers that for us that yes, she is. But, mm-hmm. but I think like Ashley specifically and, and all of breakthrough, you know, more broadly is the reason why this chapter is so emotionally affecting. Um, you know, we talk so much about characters in this book and in this world are so well drawn. And one of the reasons we love the book so much is because they're just really well drawn characters. But just if it, just because a character is well drawn doesn't mean that they're going to like behave consistently and be a good character throughout the story. And I don't think we talk about consistency of character enough. Um, this idea that uh, Wild Bill's characters never react to the plot in a way that services the plot, they react to the plot in a way that um, services their character, that uh-huh. they remain consistent and true to who they are. And, and when I look through how everyone is reacting to this horrible thing that has happened to them, and Ashley's specifically here, it's all true to who they are. We, we know we know Byron, we know Sveta, we know Lookout, and we know Ashley, and, and we can see their reaction to this event in a way that is very consistent with what we know about them. Um, I love the, the, the darkest looks in her eyes. She's trying to look casual. She's trying to look like she doesn't give a shit and she's failing. She's failing utterly. That is so true to who Ashley actually is on the inside. And I think the, the fact that we've learned about these characters and we know about them and then they behave consistently to these in these manner in this manner that we've grown accustomed to makes them feel more real. Um, so like we talk so much about well-drawn characters, but consistency is almost more important than that, I think, um, because it doesn't matter how well-drawn it is. If they act completely different a scene later, um, you've ruined your character. But but none of these characters are ever slaves to the plot, especially in this chapter. And that's to me why this worked so well. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and and just to and I I don't think I'm I don't think we're disagreeing at all, but like that they do change, but they. They, sure, change, yeah. they, they change in in ways that are also um, organic and in service to their their character and and the natural evolution of their character's arc and and how they would react to the plot in that in that scenario. Like, yeah, um, I mean, we've like Ashley specifically is one where she's gone from someone who had a had a certain view of herself and a certain behavioral 
tendency and we we see her completely differently now but it's not because she took some absurd you know left turn as a character it's because first we got to know her a lot better in her interludes and then we saw her exposed to a series of events that reinforce the type of like the person she wants to be yeah Um, and this has happened with everyone in breakthrough we're we're at this point in the story i don't know how far we are from the end i I have no idea 52.5 percent 52.5 percent from the end or through the story uh (laughs) either one um and like all of the breakthrough characters are just like people in my in my brain now like right it, it and and they're they're all completely different and complex and I know how they were, <laughs> I feel like I know how they would react to every situation. Um, and that's fantastic writing and fantastic storytelling. And, yeah. and I it, love the story. It makes emotional moments land, right? Yeah. It does. And I love that you mentioned that, that consistency of character doesn't mean your characters don't change. Part of consistency of character is that your characters consistently act according to the changes they've gone through. And and again, that is what we are seeing with Ashley here. Like we, we are seeing that like this, this, sh- this like shield of badass, uncaring supervillain that she puts up is bullshit and it's not working and it's working less than it ever has. She can't, she doesn't hide it as well anymore. She doesn't hide the fact that she's looking at all these kids and, and worried about each and every one of these kids, not just look out. She has an attachment to, to, to young suffering children because she was a young suffering child. And, and that is, totally true to the Ashley we've we've grown to love and grown to learn and and the changes that she's gone through yeah it's interesting I didn't think about this until now but for Ashley losing limbs is fairly blase she's that's true she's not so worried about herself right like she's like whatever I I have had worse um but she's she's really really uh been out of shape about what's happened to the kids and that's yeah it's that's what that's why we love her I love it so uh, Byron mentions that Vista tried to get in touch and Victoria manages to view this as a failure on her part, uh, like th- that she left her phone out of sight and thus she's being an idiot. I thought yeah. that was very interesting. I do think it's funny, though, here that it is phrased in a very specific kind of way. Um, she doesn't just directly call herself an idiot. She doesn't say, Victoria, you idiot. She says Byron could it would be fair for Byron to call her an idiot. She wouldn't she wouldn't disagree with that assessment. And that's just like a really indirect way of calling yourself an idiot in, yeah. in, like in a way that you almost like you want to be punished but you don't want that you don't want to beat yourself up you want other people to be telling you you're wrong you want someone else out there to be like no you're stupid it's your fault um it's not it's not you wanting wanting to tell yourself that and i think that's very interesting yeah yeah i like that uh so we see a picture of, of what vista has done and she's completely <laughs> vistified brockton bay i like that they use that word or that victoria does <laughs> Uh, the whole city is folded up into a box, like a, an almost cube, um, basically a box with only one side open. And apparently like a big chunk of North America has been pulled up to make the city less accessible. Um, yeah. Overall, I love it as a description, just like a, a piece of descriptive writing and and also the the awesome thing that it's describing. Yeah, it's Inception. Yeah. Wong. It's It's Inception, but somehow it makes Inception look like boring and yeah and interesting because it's like no this it's way it's way cooler than that it's like inception <laughs> on crack yes uh finally we ca- uh, we catch up to valkyrie and by that i mean the story catches up to valkyrie's story um yeah 
So Valkyrie's back. Jessica's back. Bonesaw's not back. Yeah. What What are Bonesaw and Nobug doing, Matt? I don't know. I'm confused. Do you think they uh, maybe caught wind of Amy's super happy fun time Cape Land and uh, flew the coop to hang out on Earth S? Do you think that maybe is what happened? That didn't occur to me, but thanks for putting that in my head. That's good. <laughs> It's terrifying, it right? Makes sense, though. I mean, yeah, it does. Yeah. yeah, get that little Red Queen Wonderland going. Uh-huh. Uh huh. So we get another section break, and Victoria is negotiating with somebody on the phone, angry and frustrated, and she's saying things like, "You're useless." I snarled the words, "Completely, utterly, fucking useless." Um, <laughs> and while she's shouting at Citrine, uh, the rest of Team Blue shows up. Yeah, uh, snarled is a perfect word there. I love that. Yeah. Um, but I, I really like this because throughout the rest of the chapter, we've seen this relatively calm, composed Victoria, right? Um, she's been, she's had, you know, what she needs to do to help these people on her brain. She's been dealing with everyone's needs. And then we cut rather abruptly to this moment and she's just yelling. She's just yelling in the phone. She's pissed off. She's angry. And it's only a bit later that we realize that she's outside now. She's standing in the in the cold, yelling into a phone, pacing back and forth. And we're like, this is probably what she's wanted to do the entire time, but she just hasn't been able to because she doesn't want to do that in front of everyone in the the school that's suffering right now. Yeah, right. I don't know if we've ever seen her this just like enraged. I mean, yeah, she's done yeah. things out of anger before, but this is just uh, uh, the, the, the rage venting of someone who is past the point of caring like because she's just someone who thinks a lot about appearances and and weighs weighs words and thinks about like yeah. the, the way people are saying things and she's just just going off on the mayor uh and it's great yeah and and citrine is still playing this kind of like old school like we can't be seen uh, to take sides and, and it's like this very old school kind of gamesmanship of this stuff and victoria is so beyond that now it's like wh- what what more do you have to see they're chopping children up what 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 takes the government getting involved in this thing yeah beyond children being chopped into pieces right and i mean i'm kind of with her on that it's like this this bullshit new cauldron sucks they suck beaker is that what you called them beaker, yeah. beaker. I, I, don't, I don't know if i called them that but yeah uh, so eventually Citrine agrees to further impede the finances of the cradle aligned villains uh, by using uh, number man's skills. Uh, and then also that she won't extend any favors to cradle, which is like the <laughs> most limp such, possible. It's such like, yeah, I won't help them. We promise not to help the bad guys. Yeah. And then she Thanks. mentions. Yeah. She mentions that she and Numzy are being targeted, which I guess is why they're not helping actually yeah i mean like i was just ranting about them but i i i do think um i do think they're in a kind of shitty position you know like they're they're there's so many things they're trying to balance and like they've got this contingent of anti-cape humans that are probably just getting worse as things continue to get worse and it's like it's not i don't want to make it seem like it's easy for them to just be like no we have to help out immediately give full full support to this thing but um it's still incredibly frustrating. Yeah, well, I mean, this. yeah, that's just not the way that anyone cauldron adjacent has ever seen things where yeah, they're just like, right. look, we're, we've got our eye on like the, the continuation of the human race. We can't be bogged down. Even if there is some horrible injustice, these are not literally the same people, but sort of overlapping with the same right. people who let gray boy and, and Valkyrie run around. 
and, and, and Siberian because they were like, well, she, they, they could help us later, you know? So yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So. It's, it's the, the kind of pragmatism that like, it's just like, fuck you. Like, I don't, <laughs> it's like, yeah. it's like, you might be right, but it's really annoying me. Right. I still get to yell at you. Right. Yeah. Right. Victoria asks for permission from Citrine to do what's necessary and Citrine won't give it. Um, so let's talk for an hour about why Victoria is asking for this. Yeah. So this is the first time she has made uh, audible the thing that she's probably been thinking about throughout this entire chapter so far. This, this idea that she needs to um, to take this step. And I love I love how this is written. You don't need permission for that, Antares. No, but I want it. And that's that's the most complicated thing about this decision. And I think so, probably what we're going to be spending most of our time on the rest of this chapter talking about that. She wants someone to tell her whether this is OK or not. She's this is probably one of the hardest decisions she's ever had to make in her life. And she continually reaches out to other people um, in positions of assumed authority to try to get them to make it for her. Um, if I can't do this, tell me no. And then I won't do it or tell me I can just tell me, tell me what to do. Yeah, we were, talking, we were talking about how this is kind of both a manifestation of her reaching out for what the law says in, in this like Wild West epoch where mm -hmm. the law is unclear. And so she's asking the mayor who sort of yeah. represents the law. That uh, old mantra, yeah. And, and, and also the second part of the mantra of reaching out to other people because she asks... You know, she asks Citrine here and then, you know, in the next bit, uh, Natalie's here. So Natalie and Victoria have a conversation and Victoria, like, can't get her head around Natalie. And I think it's really <laughs> great writing um, to be able to take the perspective of two people who are talking past each other like this, because basically Victoria offers her an out and says, like, I'll, I'll still respect you. Um, I hope you will want to lend a hand, but I'll still respect you if you opt out of this one. Um, and then this segues into Victoria asking natalie to sign off on murdering the villains because while natalie is not even a lawyer uh, i guess she represents the law in victoria's mind yeah um, this, matt this is yeah. the most frustrating part of this chapter to read for me because i'm like victoria she's not saying any of the things that you're thinking she's saying yeah. it's so absurd like like she starts off the chapter like like she sees natalie and goes before you make any firm judgments um like automatically like on the defensive, like assuming that Natalie isn't going to come to a conclusion that she likes. And, and, and Natalie's response to that is just like, look, I have to try to stay objective in this as objective as possible. And I think Natalie, my assumption in, in that statement is her not saying like, I don't want to go up there. I don't want to see it. I can't, I have to say objective and therefore I'm separating myself from the horror. To me, that's just like, I have to say objective. Stop trying to convince me of the point that you want, right? right? Like stop trying to convince me that your way is the right way. Let me observe objectively and then come to my own conclusion. But it's automatically like, Oh, so you, you, I, you don't want to be involved. You don't want to come up. You don't want to see it. Um, th th that's fine. You've earned being unreasonable. Like that's what she's almost saying to her. Yeah. Like you've earned putting up your, it's complicated art. You've earned being unreasonable for, because of that one thing that you did. And Natalie's like, that's not what I'm doing. Like, listen to me. I'm not doing that thing. Like the, yeah. what you're accusing me of doing, I'm not doing it. <laughs> and it's like this, it's so frustrating. It's like, I mean, it's like wonderful writing because I think it's perfectly frustrating. 
Yeah, right. It, it's it's a uh, it's frustrating in a way where you're you're basically just like, and it shows how out of sorts Victoria is that she she's right. not able to like um have um insight into into just like what Natalie is trying to do here. She's like, all right, Natalie Natalie's like, this is a terrible situation. Um, my job here is to provide them with their legal advice and give them the accurate call on whether right. they should go kill this guy. Right. Like, like not like morally should you go kill this guy, but if you go kill this guy, what are the odds that your whole team is going to go to prison for it? Right. Like that. Yeah. So, so and Victoria is almost asking for like a moral judgment and Natalie's like, that's, that's not why I'm here. I'm here to make an objective decision. Yeah. And, right. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and none of, at, at no time in any of that, conversation from natalie's side does she say ergo i can't go up there i can't help them um in fact she says she wants to be involved she just doesn't want to be overly involved she doesn't want to get too far into it that doesn't mean not going up there it doesn't mean helping not helping them out it doesn't mean observing the things that have happened but to victoria that's the assumption that's what she means um and she's like like and i love that precipice kind of like uh jumps in on this <laughs> yeah. right like like She's she's saying, I'm not saying you're being unreasonable. And Precipice is like, eh, you kind of are, though. And yeah. this is not the first time that Rain has kind of stepped in and told Victoria she was being unreasonable. Um, we've seen this before. And I, I kind of enjoy him in, in this role. Like this role is like, actually, Victoria, you kind of are being unreasonable right now. Or you you are doing the thing that you're saying you're not doing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I enjoy the increasingly uh, backbone showing precipice yeah but i mean look at this part at the end of this like if you don't want to look at the scene again let's let natalie has never once in this conversation said i don't want to look at the scene let's let's make this important right um if you want to give your opinion without knowing the whole why you've earned that it's unfair but you've earned the right to be a little unfair if you want to give that input then yeah i'll listen will listen the rest of breakthrough i think just don't be unfair about it and call it fair i don't think i'd be comfortable going this extra mile in any premeditated way if either you or the mayor said no which is interesting because she kind of just like transitions to tell me i can murder him from this she's like it's just like it's just like a really abrupt like yeah like she's she's ranting at her about how like she's trying to she's trying to be fair in her rant is saying like you've earned this it's 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 you've earned this being unfair about this blah, blah, blah. even though I, d I don't think that's what natalie's saying but um then she's suddenly like tell me tell me um i can do this right or can't do this yeah and i like the euphemism of going the extra mile uh for murdering someone yeah um i'm gonna use that in my personal life now yeah Any, anytime i refer to going the extra mile you can assume i mean killing someone yeah and i mean it is interesting that like <laughs> I hope you don't use that very often. <laughs> um, it is interesting that like she, if, if either you or the mayor say no, then I won't do it. And once again, I have to, in the back of my mind, assume that what she wants, what she kind of wants in this situation, what she will never say out loud, but she kind of wants is tell me, I can't do it. Tell me, no, tell me you don't agree with it. Tell me not to do it because I feel like I have to, I feel like I'm going to get to this place where I have to do this and I really don't want to. Um, but, but I want someone to tell me no, or at least to tell me I have permission. Just get, just make that choice for me because I can't. 
or or I can, but I'm trying as hard as I can to not make it my decision. Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's worth stepping back and saying like Victoria is clearly like compromised at this point, like like emotionally. um, I, I don't even think it would be entirely wrong to say that what she wants is at least partly revenge Par- yeah. part, partly this is about like putting down a mad dog like this is the kind of situation where back in the day there would have been an official kill order like the like right. someone on the order of the slaughterhouse nine or whatever the heroes would agree yeah this is a this is a person who is so bad that that they need to be taken out um but the problem is that the the structure that would give her that license is gone right so she's in the she's in this place of saying well I think they're a mad dog that needs to be put down, but I also just really want to kill them for entirely <laughs> personal reasons. Yeah. And, uh, and she's far too emotionally um, just completely destroyed uh, to be able to, like she, she can't sit down and journal on this to try to figure out which of her motives is actually driving her here, you know? So, yeah. So, so it, think, it makes it so much easier if someone else makes that call. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I like that. Yeah. I like that. Um, and then the conversation ends not with Natalie giving her what she wants, right? She doesn't say like, she doesn't, she doesn't, Natalie doesn't say no or yes. Um, she just like finally, finally at the very end of this conversation, Victoria like realizes she says she, she's, oh, I just put myself in your shoes. Oh, good. That's great that that's the first time you did this at the very end of this conversation. And I realized that what I'm asking you to do here is completely unreasonable and crazy. Right. And I've put you in this terrible situation. Um, so just leave. You can leave if you want to uh, or you can go up. And she chooses to go up, of course, because I yeah. think that's what Natalie was always going to do. I mean, there's a reason she's here. She didn't come here to just stand outside. Right. I, you know, I mean, just at the risk of stating the obvious, like this isn't a man victoria sucks um no, session this no. is this is a like the, what the text is doing is showing that victoria is like falling apart like she just got off the right. phone screaming at someone and now natalie shows up and she just kind of does what is really kind of a like dis- discursive rambling incoherent um like sequence of statements to natalie to like jump between yeah. topics and and, and aren't clear um, and, and make all kinds of assumptions. So it's like the point is we're just seeing how she's doing, you know, and right, she's doing right. poorly. And she has been historically uh, rough on Natalie more than a lot of other people. And and th- I think that is internally consistent. here. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. Yeah. So uh, Foyle chooses to hang back and keep watch uh, because uh the horrific things have just been wearing on her too much. Yeah. They're supposed to, you're supposed to get numb to them, right? Yeah. <laughs> nope. Nope. Not something like this. Yeah. And then I love that this is just its own line by itself. Uh, precipice followed me inside like, <laughs> like uh, no conversation needed. Of course, yeah. of course he will. Yep. Um, so they have an interaction where precipice walks through the logic with her, verifying that he's not just being selfish in thinking that turning himself in is not a good idea. Yeah, I God, I love Rain. I love that he would even feel that way, like that he would have this internal worry that's like, I don't want to turn myself in. But is that just me acting selfishly or is that actually acting 
within does, does that make sense within the best interest of our group I, I love that he's worried about that behavior this moment where he even feels like he might be acting selfishly he checks with victoria i i love that so much yeah and and this is this is another beat of victoria saying we'll figure something out she promises him we'll figure something out um the first time she did this was to sveta and we're seeing it here again um but uh, victoria i think knows what she needs to do and she's just trying to work up to it mm. um and she's putting it all on her don't worry about it rain you don't have to worry about making the decision we will figure something out i mm. will i will do this for you i will take this mm-hmm. yeah yeah um so rain suggests attacking the enemy during the mandated nightly cluster sleep yeah it isn't explicitly stated here but i think one of the implications of that strategy is that it could move from killing the enemy to killing the sleeping enemy, um, which has implications. Yeah, that's that's a little bit harder. Just I mean, at least if they're sleeping, there's a greater chance of catching them unawares and, and just capturing them. But um, yeah, yeah, you know, got to do what you got to do. Yeah. Uh, inside. Kill him. Yeah. 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 Uh, it, <laughs> inside, everybody else seems to be providing this fantastic mutual support network now, now that the other yeah. heartbroken have arrived. Um, Kenzie's relieved to have Natalie there. Juliet is calm to have Aroa there. And the text says, situations like this could bring out the worst in us. Rain joined Lookout, bending down to see how the camera had been set into place. Aiden raised a hand to bump fists with Rain, a relatively small hand meeting a smaller mechanical hand. Not just the worst in us. This is, I think, when the chapter starts to go from just a really, really good chapter to a really, really great chapter. Um, Like we talked about at the beginning, throughout all of this so far, everything has seemed dire, hopeless. Victoria's wrestling with this decision, trying to figure out what to do next um, while still struggling to help everyone. And then we have this moment where all the teams come together. Red, blue and yellow have all come to join again in one which remember when they had the idea to split up to begin with? How, how bad of a fucking idea was that? Yeah. Um, anyway, the, all parts of this team have come together and they're supporting each other. They're helping each other. And I think the tone in the chapter starts to shift a little bit. I mean, there's still this dire implication of the choice that Victoria either has already made and knows it or is still working towards making. Um, but under this is this people supporting each other like you've been talking about and i i just find it so wonderful um the in the midst of this darkness like situations like this could bring out the worst in us but not just the worst in this situations like this can bring out the best in us too and i love that idea i love it yeah yeah and it and we've been seeing that the whole time and and then we see even more of it before the end here yeah um so there's a there's a very interesting little section here um the first part of which Victoria tries to communicate with Tattletail's, I guess, whatever her arm is attached to. Um, uh, Tattletail's using a language of symbols and probably Greek letters. Apparently the team is just taking turns acting as her amanuensis. I know what that is because I just watched Cloud Atlas. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I suppose like you and I could take like a long time processing what we think these symbols mean. Um, I know there's already a whole lot of speculation over on the Parahuman subreddit. Um, and I think this this analyzing gets all the more difficult because Victoria like doesn't describe things like 
exactly what they are. Like there are Greek symbols in here. There are mathematical symbols in here and she doesn't describe them as such. Also, I have no idea what a gun check is. I don't know what that is. Um, but I think the real important part of this is, is, is not the real important part as of now. I'm sure these symbols are telling Victoria exactly what she should be doing and what she should not be doing. Um, and, and we'll see if, if that blows up in her face or not. But, um, there's this one moment at the end of this, it says there was no point to this, no pattern and no way I could bring myself to give up because giving up meant going back out there. And, and then she cuts herself off and what Matt and facing the choice that she has to make and facing the knowledge that she's probably gonna have to kill someone. Yeah. Or, 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 you know, basically she's, she's checked in with everyone. Right. So, Mm-hmm. it's it's now she has to she, she's she's done that part right now it's time for the next bit well and also i guess my thought was was on some level like i i need a break from dealing with all those people i don't know if that really scans though because she's still dealing with someone she's dealing with Hallfail, um yeah. but in a way that doesn't really require her her resources yeah i mean um, i think i think tile the last one so like yeah she walks out of this room the taking care of part is over the the next step part has begun mm. and she's not quite ready for that yet yeah um just just briefly like the 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 code the code thing is interesting because like why why wouldn't she just like write letters right so like yeah. th- there's something there's something interesting going on here like it, yeah. it, it, beyond just beyond just what is she trying to communicate why is she using a code at all you know it, it's it's interesting and yeah. I'm sure we'll does find she, out but does she even know it's victoria at the other end of this yeah i mean that that was one that was, i think that was one thought was like she's giving a she's giving it in code because she doesn't know who might actually be t- receiving this message and she and she doesn't think it would uh be good if just like some random person received it i yeah. don't know i don't know is it to foil and it just so happens that the only person that's not inside is yeah. the one person that needs to see this right yeah. right um so, but then, you know, I think at like just the right time, just as she's struggling with being unable to like move forward, her parents show up <laughs> and Carol, uh, moms the fuck up and just silently gives her daughter a hug. Oh my God. Talk about manipulating your emotions, right? Like she's in this terrible situation and we'll learn later that, um, her, her talking to Tattletail in this moment is Tattletail's arm that's just sitting in a sink that's like making symbols on her right like it's not yeah. it's just like a little it's like the piece is like so much smaller and more horrifying than you would think um but we see carol and we're like oh fuck because like she just was on the phone with citrine and like screaming at her and a mess and she just kind of um was agitated in her conversation with natalie and then here's carol to to fuck up the day um <laughs> and thank Christ, it doesn't happen. Thank God, Carol. Uh-huh. At least in this moment, listens. Um, and of course, Vict- like Victoria begs her to. Basically, she she says, "Not now." She says, "All this stuff. I will talk to you about all this stuff later." But now, just now, don't. And okay, we don't know for a fact that Carol was going to walk in the door and say, "All right, let's talk about Amy." Um, probably not. But the important part here is not whether or not Carol was going to do that. The important part here is Victoria communicates what she needs and Carol listens to that without questioning it and supports her and good job, Carol do more of that. Yep. Yep. It's, it's great. It's wonderful. Um, yeah, I got nothing really to add there. It's just like, you're afraid it's going to not go that way. And then you're like, ah, oh, finally, yeah. 
finally a good, a, a, a just like wholly good Carol moment where yep. there's really nothing about it where I want to be like, ah. yeah, there's, there's, yeah, you're right. There's really nothing you can go. Well, I mean, yeah. it looks good, but right. uh, yeah. Yeah. So the next section, the paramedics have arrived and been briefed. Victoria has suggested that Sveta subject herself to Rain's power to gain more control. I don't, I don't, I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Right. But what's funny? I mean, Victoria also doesn't know. Like she's, yeah. <laughs> she's like, it's it's like really bad. It's like really like, I I don't know. And Svet and Svet is like, it's always really bad. So right. Why not but try like, it? True. But we also know that it was really bad for Victoria, who was presumably feeling a uh, lower level version of it due to her uh, resistance. Yeah. Um, it, it seems to me like a very temporary solution, like it temporarily allows her to get control of her body um, in this moment where she has no suit to go into and, and nothing to contain her. Um, but it feels like this could have long term repercussions like this could really like she's already in a really bad place and this could really, really fuck her up. Um, and and that I just it scares the shit out of me. Maybe it'll be better because he's, she's receiving sure. a full dose. Sure. That's how things work in this world. Yep. Uh, now Mark hangs out with Candy, and uh, when she rebuffs his approach, he starts rolling a ball to her, one of his one of his little light grenades. I, I just love that, like, this fantastic way of sharing space and sharing human connection with the person, but giving them physical space. Right. Um, and then, then in a little bit, Victoria and Juliet join the ball passing game. And let's talk about this for hours, too. Yeah, this was uh, the most emotionally affecting scene of the entire chapter to me. Yeah, um, this is really, really wonderful. And I think it's wonderful for a few. Re- like, I think, first of all, one of the big deals is we're using a power in a non-combat way. Like mm-hmm. this is this is a power used solely uh, to support here. Um, yeah. in this moment and that's not something we see very often we've talked a lot about how the powers are very combat focused and it's not something you see every day is is power used in that manner um and then like like you've been talking about all chapter this is people coming together and supporting each other and it's just this this silent um no words spoken just back and forth support yeah um and it's just it's just like the image is wonderful. The fact that it's a mix of people that Mark is there, that it's um, two of the, the the heartbroken Victoria and Mark, like a mixture of teams, people that don't even know each other. Mark does not know this girl at all. Mark probably has barely any idea who Candy is as a person. He sees a person that needs help. He tries to help. He's rebuffed. And instead of just saying like, well, fine, fuck you. He just refocuses how his help is is delivered yeah and that is what people need and that is how you can help people and that is this group of people coming together and it's it's beautiful it's wonderful it works it does to me everything it's supposed to do and i just i can't i just i feel a glowy just thinking about yeah. it this is a great like mark moment for me because yeah I, and i don't know if you agree and i don't know if this was intended but like this is where my head went immediately what was like Mark is a veteran cape and this is probably not even the first time he's done this. Probably not. Yeah. Like this, this like be, just being a, a, a first risk, like a cape is in some sense a first responder. So like mm-hmm. how many times has he had to be there for people who were just experiencing the worst day of their life or, or yeah. some massive loss. And 
and this is and like yeah maybe he did just think of this use of his power but maybe this is just what he does with kids where where this is the level on which a kid maybe needs emotional support i mean it it, it reminded me immediately of like this is how you this is a great way to connect with it with a small child like you can't you can't ask a small child like to tell you about their day you can roll them a ball and 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 have an interaction with them on that level and there's something very healing i think about just engaging on on the level of like uh basically a, a child a child level yeah um i think it's po- very positive i agree i love it i love yeah. it to death yep i'm so glad it's in this chapter and i'm glad you mentioned that it's using a power for a non-combat application because like in a time like this maybe it, it helps for these people to be made to feel a little bit less like weapons after this thing has happened to them yeah. using powers. I mean, and, and like, and that's, I mean, that's what they're like. Nothing in this chapter, like there's no fighting in this chapter, mm-hmm. um, physical fighting. There's no combat. This is just people as people, not, not even as capes for the most part, supporting each other. Yeah. Yeah. So there's this beat in here where we are reminded that Victoria's foot is injured to the point where she's just flying everywhere now. Yeah, that's a good it's yeah. a good thing to bring up for sure. Yeah. yeah. And here, so here we have a section where I don't think I actually parsed it right the first time. So she's calling Jessica Yamada's phone and she's like being hung up on basically. Mm-hmm. And then she dials the same number using Juliet's phone and the call goes through to the answering machine. And then she uses her own phone again and the call is terminated again. Immediately. Immediately. It doesn't even ring. Right. Yeah. So the conclusion is that Jessica or somebody is screening her calls specifically. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's exactly, that's exactly right. And she, she tries to reach out to Jessica and is rebuffed specifically. The best psychiatrist in the world is back. They're back. Our team needs them now more than ever. And she ignores them. Yeah. Um, Well, and and yeah, (laughs) it's funny because it puts you in the same space as, as I imagine Victoria to be where you're like, (laughs) why <laughs> right but i love i love that that's victoria's reaction is why but her reaction is like i could probably come up with excuses for her and reasons and and it probably makes logical sense but i'm i'm just too tired right now i just yeah. don't i just don't want to i just yeah. don't like i just i can't i can't right now she just knows that she doesn't have jessica and um you have to assume here that like the question that she's been asking other positions of authority all throughout this chapter. She asked the mayor, she asked Natalie, who um, not a perfect representation of the law, but um, someone who has showed objective decision-making in the past. Um, And then she goes to her therapist. um, Tell me what to do. Tell me, tell me that I can or can't do this. Someone tell me. And uh, kind of for the third time, she doesn't get the answer. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a great point that that like she's she's almost teased with this idea that like, oh, thank God, Jessica's back at this. Jessica, Jessica's back. She'll tell me what to do. Yeah. Finally, someone is here to tell me what to do. Right. At this ultimate low moment. um, Oh, oh, thank God I can get an out. I don't have to make the decision. And then no, no, it's robbed from her because Jessica's not answering the phone. And it's like even worse now. Yep. So the chapter ends with Ashley stating that the Annihilation Sisters will be joining the attack. Is that what we're calling them now? <laughs> uh, it, just, it just seemed fitting in this moment. Okay. Uh, and Victoria overlooks her wobble uh, and lets her rest uh, leaning against her shoulder. Yeah, so she was going to tell her, you you can't come 
because you're not strong enough and she wobbles but she lets her come anyway yeah and yeah. I, I just i love the image of her overlooking the wobble and then providing the shoulder to lean on yeah um because she understands that that um ashley needs this basically yes yes yeah and then chapter ends we had the verdict from natalie we had the opportunity we had the motive the means we would see if we had the means and i was just like i couldn't help but laugh at that because she's means motive and opportunity and verdict are all words you associate with the murder she's already convicting but herself she's convicting herself of of a, of a murder and she's convicting it from from such a cop point of view yeah it's just i i love i love framing it that way so much. yeah she hasn't even done it yet and she's already building the case against herself yeah no i i, I adore that yeah and also i find that line interesting though we had the verdict from natalie because again we didn't see natalie weigh in on this and and i guess maybe the assumption is it happened in between one of the section breaks but i feel like that something like that would be important enough for victoria to comment on it right yeah um so i don't know if that just like the verdict is um i'm not gonna tell you you can or can't right yeah maybe that, that could be it but yeah i just it is it is wonderful that that's how we frame she she's made this she's basically made the choice at this point i think because yeah. she's describing it as a murder that that is that is symbolically to me saying I'm going to kill one one or more of these people. I'm going to do it. We yeah. are going to do it. Um, that's the choice that we have now. And right. the, the only question is whether or not we have the ability to. Yeah. I mean, basically saying we have the motive is, is, is a way of saying uh, we want to, we're gonna. <laughs> right. Right. We have the opportunity. Yeah. Uh, we, we're, we're gonna. Yeah. We're gonna, we we're, just got to see, we just got to see if we, we have the means, if we're yeah, capable. We of actually can it. manage it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Whoa, that was just uh, one chapter. Yeah, um, that was one chapter. That wraps up. So no, normally 11. we've we've wrapped. Yeah, we wrapped up an arc, Matt. Normally we do a post arc summary, but um, looking at the time, we are an hour, an hour, and twenty minutes into this <laughs> podcast, and we have a whole other giant long chapter to go. So um, I don't think we're going to be doing our normal like arc summary. I think we kind of hit on it on the like uh, the beats that I wanted to say when we were talking the chapter, this idea that we started off with a very frustrated, uh, confused Victoria, um, who doesn't understand, um, why things keep getting worse and why things are going this way. And by the end of the chapter, we have a Victoria who has decided to kill someone. Um, and yeah. that is, that is, that is the arc in my mind. Um, right. The, so. the observing her own escalation, yes. um, t- t- into the same frame of mind that she's, been resisting through this yep. whole story actually yep 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 all right 12 dot z <gasps> and we'll we'll just set aside the why it's called that i guess for now um i mean okay so like it could be a few things right like f- first of all we're dealing with time march time powers march is going to mess with time loops and other time fuckery uh maybe when you mess with time things get out of order um, there's also the fact that space in Brockton Bay is folded back on itself, beginnings folded onto endings. Um, so there's a lot of reasons why it could be that this is 12.z. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think there's a lot of speculation going around. Um, at the time of writing the script on Tuesday, the chapter had not been released yet. So we are living in a world now where we know uh, the arc titled name. Um, we know kind of we've gotten another chapter, which, which allows us to start drawing a pattern. Um, and, and, but, but, but regardless, you're right that we've never quite started an arc like this before. We've never not known the name of the arc as we moved into it. We've never, 
um, started on a Z interlude. We never started on an interlude period. So I think you're spot on that we're we're doing something different with structure and we're dealing with time bubbles and, and loops and and a character in this interlude who is like a time master. Um, so it's not too much of a stretch to extrapolate that we're going to be doing some some time trickery here. And uh-huh. I'm really excited about it. Yeah, me too. And I think like looking at this, I think this is a good way to say. I think Wild Bo's been experimenting with structure um, throughout the story a little bit, right? Like, like yeah. he's done different things than, um, than he's done in the past. Um, we're like it's much less rigid to a certain kind of structure we've done. Um, we've done a whole interlude in the halfway in between another interlude in an interlude with the eclipse. We've done multiple interludes throughout chapters, um, or throughout arcs. Like we've had three or four interludes throughout the arc. We, we, there's structure being explored with here. Um, and I think, I think this is really cool because I think it's a reflection of like confidence. Like I know my set structure and now I'm going to experiment with it. Now I'm going to see, um, all the thing, like all that this format has to offer. And it's using also serialized storytelling to do interesting things to a person reading ward two years from now. Um, suddenly waking up on a Saturday and seeing 12 dot Z is not going to have as much of an effect. But for us, the people reading it live with the story as, as it's published, it's like this holy shit, what's going on moment. And I think it like this, this shocking, exciting, interesting shift in how the story is told is using the serialized medium to its fullest effect, its fullest potential. And I, I love it. Love it. Right. And, and every single one of these, um, structural uh, deviations i guess from like the standard pattern is is making some particular point right like like we're going to eventually understand what why this is 12.z you know sure yeah we're not we're not going to walk away from ward being like why did he do that one thing where he started a chapter with an interlude and it was but it should have been 11.z like or or it should have been <laughs> like, like like it's get it, there's going like it, it always ends up making sense right right um right. like eclipse like it's we talked about that forever you know yeah. so it's obvious at this i was point, convinced but. i was convinced it was a typo i really was it was like oh he published he put 12 he got ahead of himself it's 11 <laughs> here we go end of yeah. the arc um, yeah nope but no i mean yeah i i love i love i just love this aspect of the meta the meta of the storytelling yeah i mean it's cool it's exciting it gives it, it builds a unique experience for the readers that uh are reading yeah. as it's released and i think that's exciting and that's one of the things i was most looking forward to covering in this story is this experience of reading a book as it is being written and published to me yeah although i guess some of these interesting kind of funny things can be incorporated later like the fact that imp's interlude was was never uh linked in the table of contents because, <laughs> because he kept forgetting. Um, <laughs> so yeah. Uh, so this chapter interlude may is our point of view character. She's waiting for the train with her mother. Uh, we learned that her thought that we learned from her thoughts that she and her mother are uh, Japanese refugees from the Kyushu attack uh, of, of Leviathan um, her mother fidgets, touching her constantly, kissing her head, smoothing her hair and clothes. Um, and May mentions that they'll be late, which is the first distinct mention of time, prompting her mother to momentarily remove her focus from her daughter and onto the clocks that are within sight. 
so let's just not be coy here, Matt. <laughs> this is March. Uh-huh. Um, this is March, and it, it, there is a wonderful sense of irony that her chosen name was May. Her chosen cape name is March, um, which has so many different meanings. First of all, they're months in the year, um, which links to her obsession with time. Of course, then we have the link to the March Hare, which is something we talked about uh, in the past. And in Alice in Wonderland, the March Hare um, is known to be crazier in March and less crazy in May. Um, that's what Alice in Wonderland says. Uh-huh. So uh, so here we have a slightly less crazy version of March in, in Little May. Um, and of course, the first words that May, a.k.a. March, a.k.a. the March Hare says is, we're going to be late, um, which is so on the nose that I can't help but love it. Uh-huh. Um, and I want to make sure you get the credit that you deserve, Matt, um, because you speculated to me last week before this chapter came out that Mark's trigger event would have something to do with her being late for a very important date. Um, and you weren't 100 percent correct here. You know, you, it wasn't exactly how you planned it out, but it was like. It's like a good 80 percent. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm giving myself a, a low B at this point because. I, I my thought was the trigger was going to essentially be like she's late for something and it's such an important thing that that the being late like ruins her life. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not really what it is like like right. the, the late being late is part of the trigger event. Yeah, but it's not. Um, <laughs> It has probably more to do with the horrific death of her mother. I'm going to no, stretch no. out in that yeah. direction. Um, But yeah. No, I, I, I was, I was moderately pleased with myself, despite, despite <laughs> it not being a Scott level accurate prediction. Oh, come on, one time. <laughs> so nearby, uh, a gaggle of teenagers does teenagery things. Uh, note this first fixation on the specific word teenager, and the concept of classifying people by their age, which is something that she does consistently. Uh, she also thinks uh, specifically that, that the guy they're catcalling might be two years older. Again, hyper-conscious of time and, and, and rel- relative age. I'm glad you pointed this out because this is everywhere in this chapter, right? Um, May's attention paid to dates, times, um, numbers, that kind of thing. It's, it's everywhere. It's constant. Whenever, whenever a new person comes into a scene that doesn't have a name, they're described as the 20 something one, um, or the oldest one, that kind of thing. And it it is so true to her character and it starts here at the beginning, even before she triggers. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's much like Victoria looks at everyone's fashion. Um, March is entirely conscious of just their age, their relationship with time. Yep. She sees who we can assume is Lily, uh, who, who she thinks of as fun girl. I just absolutely love that language for some reason. <laughs> uh, May desperately wants to be Lily in this moment instead of herself. And she thinks at length about how overwhelming and suffocating her life is and how she wants to just escape. Yeah. Um, it, once again, I think and throughout this entire arc and why I fell in love with it after I started really studying it is while Bo is doing some very specific things with language and writing here um, on the surface, this allusion to wearing Lily's clothes is a direct reference to wearing her skin, which we see later in the chapter. Um, so what starts is like a slightly uncomfortable desire turns into like an all out obsession a little bit later. But um, th- there's more there's more than that going on here. Like like, first of all, we, we also show Lily as fun girl, which is something I don't think anyone has ever described foil as ever, ever, uh-huh. um, which, again, I think is, is setting up some very specific uh, personality changes that are going to happen after their trigger. Um, 
and, and then he has his point of view character referencing fairy tales. The narration of this text a lot of times is almost like sing songy and, and, and dropping very loaded words like mad desire. Um, and that, like, look, listen to the sentence like it was a moment that struck her, her as profound. The kind of moment she imagined would be with her forever. This like I don't we've been reading Wild Bill's books for two years now, right? This is not the typical kind of voice he writes his stories in. This is something stylistically different. And it's it's different intentionally. We're we're doing this kind of like even and we're gonna ramp it up when we actually get to March. But even even in the May sections, there's this kind of like different oddness to how she sees the world and it's reflected in how the narration is doled out to us. Um, especially like and it, it, it comes off even more odd when it's like layered on top of this story that is ostensibly horrible. This, this, this poor little girl that is being like completely controlled by her very overbearing mother. And it's so strange and wonderful. Yeah. You know, some of my favorite Wildo um, interludes across all three of his stories that I've read now and can say that um, are the are, are what you might call like xenofiction, where it's like the the perspective of a entity that is not human. Right. Um, there are several in Worm. Um, there, there, there's, been the, there's been the dot interlude in this story. You know, there's Scion, obviously. There's, there's yeah. ones in the other stories. Um, I bring this up to say like, the March interlude here reminds me more of those than it does of a typical, <laughs> like, like, like Wildo always writes, like he always gives characters their own voice and their own right. things they're fixated on and their own, their own, everything that's going on with them. But this one, like March is just so unhinged in, in, in such an interesting and unique way that it, that it reminds me more of his, like trying to write like a really bizarre mind. that's nothing like my mind right. um, and, and pulling it off in a way where I'm like, yeah, I can kind of see how that would be actually. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, her mom says, I'm so proud of you. I know you're going to be great if we aren't late. Are you still visualizing the singing? Yeah. I murdered the time when I ran through it with Miss B. <laughs> so on top of this being a very specific word used, like murdering the time is very specific to like an illusion of whatever the hell she's hoping to do uh, in the future. Um, this is a literal specific Alice in Wonderland like illusion um the the queen of hearts accuses the mad hatter of murdering time when he's performing a song like he performs a song so badly he murders time that's why in alice in wonderland time is stuck at, at six so they're always having tea uh the mad hatter and uh, and the march hare so that's a very specific alice in wonderland reference um also again i have to point out like the sing-songy nature of this right like i know you're going to be great if we aren't late like it's like it's like so it's so off in just the most wonderful way yeah i love it i love it so much yeah so she sees lily's sister and uh her boyfriend approach the platform uh we know this because lily told us her trigger event earlier and they began haranguing lily uh but the whole episode is filtered through uh may's exhaustion with her life how she can't even like feel bad for homeless people because her life is so relentless that she would trade places with him because at least he's free. Yeah. Uh, the homeless man we should say ends up being Homer, the the third number of their cluster. Um, I know like, I, I like may has individual moments with each of these people, right? Like, like the people that end up in her cluster, she sees Lily foil 
And she says like she has this moment with her where they like lock eyes and she's got this this really obsessive like I want your life moment. Um, and then she kind of does the same thing with Homer here. Like she she sees him and she looks at him as despite all the, the terrible things that he has to go probably has to go through. She sees him and his life as freedom as freedom. And I think we're going to circle back to this, like the reason why I think this is very explicitly done here right before her trigger event, uh, as we get further into the story. But I wanted to point it out here because she does have very specific, like focused moment with each of these people. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, so eventually May's mother is pushed off the edge of the subway platform by the scuffle and the mother pulls her over the edge as she falls yeah, and the, the text says because there was no reality where she wouldn't let go of May, which mm-hmm. is a, a really nice little touch there. Yeah, yeah. So I hate to sound like a broken record here, Matt, but once again, I have to point out the ways in which the voice here is so different from the usual kind of narrative voice in the story. Because um, the text says all the emotions that had been brimming inside of May were left standing behind her like a cloud of dust after a cartoon character was whisked away. I mean, this is not how like we're definitely not in Victoria's head. It definitely not in Taylor's head, but it's not, it's not just that it's the other interludes as well. This is not how the, the, the book is written. It's, it's distinctly different and it's, it's intentional. Yeah. Well, it's, it's this like hypercharged. I don't know. Like I, the thing is, I, I both see this as a, as like a unhinged, crazy kind of um, mindset and also can kind of relate to like feeling this way when I was like 14 where like every yeah. every everything is hyper important and, and every moment is is relevant and you're at that age where like every movie is is life-changing and so deep and everything is so deep and every every personal relationship you have is so important and um so I can relate I can relate to feeling that way sure yeah I think that's a, a general like teenager thing that yeah. you feel like you're experiencing these emotions for the first time ever and it's like oh my god yeah this is the this this is it so it's like all of that except bottled up into these tiny little moments for me because she has no freedom right to express these feelings so it's it's like hyper uh distilled in these moments yeah i mean it's almost as if the only way the only method of expression is through her internal narrative mm-hmm. so that narrative is more personally her than uh, some of the other characters we've we've had interludes for. I like that. Yeah, I like that. So May's first concern is that her wrist is hurt and she can't play violin. Um, or maybe that's a backwards way of phrasing it. Maybe she's <laughs> actually grateful for her wrist being hurt. Her mom tries to lift her up, but May wastes time first saving her violin instead of herself. Yeah. And I think that's the wonderful thing about this is I think it is both. I think it is both. Um, she's worried and nervous about the fact that she can't play violin and that she senses uh, freedom because she can't play violin um, because you're right. She does save that violin. One of the first things she does is pick up her violin off the tracks. Her mom picks her up and instead of saving herself, she tosses the violin to safety first. Um, and, and and there's this moment where she questions it too, like in her, her internal monologue, it's, why did I, why did I do that? And I think that's one of the fascinating contradictions of this character that like she's, she's had this beaten into her so much. And I don't mean physically beaten into her. I just, I hope not. I don't know. Um, beaten into her so much that, um, she, she carries it out without a, without really thinking about it. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, you could, I mean, I think we will talk about the fact that the power that she gets is basically, uh, her mom in her head forever. Like it's, it's, yep. It's, (laughs) the schedule Thanks, shard 
Yeah, right. Exactly. So uh, she slips aside and into an alcove without saying anything, leaving her mother confused and unable to find her. Yeah. And I think we need to make sure that it's that it's explicit that she's fully aware that she's doing this. Right. Um, She is by not reaching out to her mom. She's kind of dooming her to get hit by the train. Um, This is this is really clear in the text. Like she she says, like she it's a calculated maybe not entirely conscious, but she's aware that that by doing this, by hiding, by not shouting out to her, by waiting, um, she's she's doomed her mom to death. Yeah. And like there's the moment. I don't think I even really caught it on the first read through, but there's the moment like just before the train hits her mom when they actually make eye contact. Yeah. And, and basically the text is like, she wasn't sure that she had done the right thing. And, and that to me underlines like that she absolutely did it on purpose. Yeah. Yeah. Which, yeah, was really kind of dark. (laughs) It's very dark. It's very dark. Um, and I love this part. She might've imagined it, but it seemed to her that it, that as the train hit all the other people, it paused for just a hair, a single tenth of a tick of a clock. I, I love that. Yeah. First of all, we're using hair in a, a loaded way again because oh. we're March hair. I know it's a different kind of hair, but the the, the intent is still there, yeah. I think. I love the language in that whole part. Like the yeah. the, the train, uh, just the, the, the rivets in the metal on the side of the train grazing her fingertips. Like it's, right. it's the nearest it could possibly be. Um. And, and everything about like this whole cluster is about precision, like precision yep. control of angles, precision control of time. Um, and an element that I haven't quite figured out how it fits is the ability to penetrate anything. Like it's, it, it's a very like all or nothing power set, I, yeah. I guess is, yeah. is one way to look at it. Sure. So yeah, she triggers just after the train kills her mother and several others, I guess. Uh, and her shard seems to be the one that, like her, her her primary shard seems to be fixated on the cycle. There's an awareness within this shard of all the other shards and their masks and their roles, very similar to Valkyrie's perspective um, on on the cycle. Um, and she's her her trigger event is basically watching the shards flicker through countless cycles. Yeah. Yeah. I I like that because we're getting we're we're kind of like we know March is dealing with these time bubbles and we know she's doing something with this and something's going on there. So we're getting the the book is stressing that the cycles, the cyclical nature of the shards is something that is going to be uh, paramount to whatever March is trying to accomplish. And that's established here, right here in her trigger vision. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So she hears. Uh, who we later learn is Homer uh, screaming, probably realizing that his friend is dead or his girlfriend or whatever. Uh, And the trigger vision briefly strikes her again, uh, presumably as he triggers. Yeah. Uh, She gets a taxi to take her to Juilliard, uh, repeating herself like a machine, a metronome. Yeah, that's I think this is the most uh, upsetting moment in this early part of it for me, that like even after what she did and what happened to her, she just like carries on doing exactly what she would do. She just gets in a car, heads to Juilliard to try out. Um, it, it's, it's disturbing. I mean, like the, the metronome speak is like explicitly meant to be disturbing, right? Like yeah. she just repeats Juilliard again. Yeah. Um, and it, uh, it's so creepy. <laughs> right. Yeah. It, it, yeah. May, May is already kind of creepy, but it, it made me wonder like how much was this, how much did this event like crack her? Versus how much was she already 
cracked. <laughs> yeah, well, um, and I think one of the other things it does, to me at least, is we learn a little bit later that um, that this cluster in particular shares personality traits and trades them kind of back and forth depending on who wants or uses what. And I think to me this kind of demonstrates that that, that didn't happen right away, that she's still kind of um, very much a similar version of the person she was right after the trigger event. And, and that change happens a little bit after, after she like realizes um, that she can push away the parts of her. She doesn't like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it wouldn't be a time theme chapter if we didn't cut back and forth in time. So <laughs> now that we've ended this, you know, the, the maze trigger event section, we're now in the present with March driving her small army, uh, her mega cluster, as she calls it toward Brockton Bay. And we gradually learn about her allies. We've got Tori, Goddess's force cluster mate, the force field user. We've got Ixnay, the baby. Um, <laughs> she also thinks of Vista as as like a teenage girl. So again, an awareness of ages. Yep. We see her take in the destruction of Bet and, and think about it entirely in disconnected, inhuman terms. Like all she's really noticing about it is the intricacy and the novelty of it, like watching an elaborate domino setup or a Rube Goldberg machine or like a, a bloodless industrial disaster or something. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think while we saw someone that was a little off in May, um, March is March now and yeah. March is mad. Um, and, and it, it is like, we see it increasingly as we go through this chapter, but like, you're right. There's this, this detached nonchalance here. Um, foil told us that everything is a game to March. And that's the person we see here. She, she comes up upon, uh, you know, Vista's inceptioning of Brockton Bay and she cackles, she laughs. It's fun to her. It's a game. It's so much more fun this way. It's going to be great. And it's just disturbing. It's so disturbing in such an effective way. And that's what like, look, I know like March is awful. Like she's like an awful, awful, awful person. Um, but I find her character just delightful because it's just so off and weird and, and, and silly on top of disturbing. And I just, I enjoy reading that. Yeah. It's a great villain. I agree. I, 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 I hate her more than I've hated anyone in the story so far, which is interesting because this is a story that has cradle in it. Yeah. Um, I'm not even sure why exactly. I, I kind of want to figure that out. Yeah. Um, you should, you should examine that. Well, I think part of it is just the casual killing. Sure. Like cradle is hurting people in an unforgivable way because he's angry and wants revenge. March just, is just doesn't care. Yeah. So anyway, um, March seems to think that Vista doesn't like understand her own power um, or she like isn't using it right. Vista veteran cape and sole survivor of the Brockton Bay wards <laughs> who's beaten and outright killed loads of people who has all kinds of tricks that she uses in combat. Sure. Okay. March. Yeah. Yeah. It is interesting. I think it's, it's an introduction of her concept of the quiet part of the power, right? Mm -hmm. Not the end effect of, but the weird stuff that happens while she's using it. Um, and she sees this as the best parts of the power and Vista's not using that part. Um, and we'll see, um, if she's right, we'll see yeah. who wins. I mean, we don't know. yeah, I mean, maybe she is right, but like, I, I just immediately, as soon as she was thinking this, I was like, yeah, like that time that she like stretched and then pinched off a building to collapse it onto someone. Right. That's not, yeah. Okay. It's yeah. not, it's not a very quiet part. It's not quiet, but it's, it, it is an application of her power as it's being used rather than like, I don't know. Well, maybe and, and I'm, part maybe of I'm it, not understanding what she means exactly. I mean, I think that's part of it for me too. And I think it's because like what she's saying is kind of nonsensical 
throughout most of this chapter. So it's like sometimes it's really hard to parse exactly what you mean, which, again, I think is intentional. Because if you look at, at you look at the March Hare, like we have Alice in Wonderland references sprinkled throughout this entire chapter. And if you look at the March Hare and the Mad Hatter and the the, the conversation they had, um, it's mostly nonsense. It's mostly like like cleverness with wordplay and like and true meanings or implied meanings of words. Um, and, and we kind of see her talk similar to that throughout this chapter. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, yeah. All right. Uh, so, uh, related to that, March says a bunch of gobbledygook to Tori, um, who is her apparent squeeze, mm-hmm. uh, which makes more sense after having taken in the whole chapter. Um, basically the gist of it is that she thinks of decades of time together as short term because she's got her <laughs> sight set on forever. Yeah. I hate when I, uh, say the thing that I wrote down right before the spot in the script <laughs> that I wrote it down because this is, this is where I wrote down all that stuff that, yeah. that, um, her her talk here is very confusing. Like, it, it's kind of like like Mad Hatter, um, March Hare type double speak here. Like, like the idea. Like, we'll be we'll be here for decades. Um, it's it's dec- short is long. Yeah. When long is longest, kind right. of thing. Yeah. Like it's just like this. Like, <laughs> like one of the things. One of the first conversations the March Hare has in Alice in Wonderland is is like. Um, they say have some more tea and Alice is like, I can't have more if I didn't have any to begin with. And they're like, yes, you can. It's like having more than nothing is the easiest thing in the world. And they're just like, like just nonsense, like contradictions or, or technical definitions. And that's Uh kind of what this is. It's like, like long is shorter than forever. (laughs) And it's like, it's just like kind of nonsense, confusing devil speak type stuff. What's funny is that Tori, like, points this out and you almost get the sense that this happens a lot yeah where she's like you're she's she's at first she's happy and she's like oh no wait you're doing that thing (laughs) right um Um, but i mean the the most interesting thing of this to me is this idea that she does say like whatever march is planning here um they will have decades together so it's not like she's gonna stroll up to one of these time bubbles pop it and then the world's gonna immediately end um whatever it is it's going to take some time. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, so then March romantically vows to murder our beloved Vista. Uh, so the city can bloom like a flower. Um, Hey Scott, I would really not mind if March got hit by a train soon. Yeah. As much as I find this uh, delightfully zany character that kind of ends when they start hurting the people I like. Um, yeah. And we get this line. You're so weird. I'm ahead of the curve. And (laughs) I, I love that as like, I mean, it's just a, a clever March thing to say. Um, also, the Joker says it in uh, Dark Knight. But anyway, um, it's also like I think, it, you know, goes into what we've been talking about with the fact that like things are getting worse and, and uh, villains are are willing to get more and more extreme and heroes have to respond with higher and higher levels of force because of that and how this could just escalate and keep going. And I think March totally buys into that and she's just she just steps above where everyone else is and, and fully thinks that oh, you're going to get to where I am eventually. Yeah. Just terrifying. Cause where she is, is I don't give a fuck about anybody. Yep. Yeah. This is one of those chapters where like if, if March were anticlimactically like killed by a piece of concrete to the head, I would have been like, huh, that was a strange <laughs> narrative choice, but somehow I don't mind moving on. Um, also in my head canon, um, the dark Knight exists in this universe and, <laughs> and March just, it. just quoted the Joker. Which is perfect. Yeah. Maybe they, maybe they got that movie from, 
Aleph or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's a whole weird thing, though, that Batman would be. Anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah, that would be really weird. I don't know how that would work. Yeah. Would people be interested in a rich dude without superpowers in a world with superpowers? I don't know. Maybe, yeah. Yeah, maybe that's like a novelty. Yeah, right, right. There's got to be at least one of those. <laughs> a cape with a cape who isn't a parahuman. Yeah. So we meet several more of her allies. Uh, there's Jace and Megan, uh, who who are two of the other uh, goddess cluster mates. The great. Yeah, I think twins. Megan's the 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 power enhancer one, right? The yeah. Battery. Yeah. Yeah, I believe you're right. The gray twins, uh, Ixnay wearing imp's arm, uh, <laughs> Kingdom Come, who's apparently injured. Um, and then like a bunch of corner world thugs whose names I don't recall hearing before. And they all exit the vehicles and they start the attack with March using her combat thinker power to give everyone hand signals and coordinate them. Yeah. Um, so we see her kind of march her troops out there. Mm-hmm. And this is when like we see that how how she commands the battlefield that she is kind of like like she's dressed up like a, a like a, a bunny like soldier right like right. she's in a marching uniform and she's kind of commanding her troops like they're a drum line or something and uh i mean it's like the, the frustrating thing about this is it's really cool like i hate that it's cool but it is like like she just has like this casual indifferent confident command of the battlefield as she just kind of uses her power to just wipe the floor with everything yeah and and the the detachment <laughs> the, the detachment does come off as as God, I hate to use the word cool in this context because I hate this person. But but like <laughs> but like there is something very um mesmerizing, I guess, uh, about yeah. a, about a character who like her her power and confidence here comes from her madness and 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 like lack of concern for anyone or anything. And and yeah. and, and, and and the fact that she just like knows that she's going to win. Right. Um, yeah. 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 I get this bit here. Um, she'd skin foil and wrap herself in foil. She would soak herself in foil and gorge herself on foil's flesh. Foil's clothes would be decoration, as she had fancied once upon a time. She would be in and of and greater than and less than and equal to foil. Then she would be in and of and to and through foil and vice versa. And if foil made it, which she would, provided March didn't make any hilariously bad slips with the knives which she wouldn't, then what was left of her would come to accept it in time. She would see that it all made sense. She would even come to love it. Cool, 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 cool. <laughs> Let's move on. I don't want to talk about this. This is really gross. I am a little confused about this in in uh, in the concept of what we learn her goal is at the end, right? Because um, it seems like, cause, so, I mean, we're jumping a little lo- head a little bit but the end she realizes that homer has died and then becomes part of some uh cluster collective in heaven that she can be part of um and she wants foil to be there too um so why she gotta like do all the gross tortury stuff to do that i don't know like she she doesn't (laughs) want her to die like she says right here like like if foil made it which she would providing i didn't make any slips with the knives hilariously bad slips which right. is just like disgusting Ugh. Ugh. Yeah. Ugh. anyway um it just yeah i mean like i don't know i guess like the idea is like i'm gonna torture you until you love me and then we're gonna eventually die together and then get to be or or they're like the same one. person i mean that that's that's what's 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't have anything to really say. Like, it's, it's, it's. We I could. think we'll understand eventually. But she seems to want to like literally merge with Foil. Yeah. Um, which is more than just like being with her in heaven. Yeah. Because because like the, think- it's not really heaven. It's it's a it's a mainframe where they're all just sort of like merged together over time. Look, you define heaven the way you want to, <laughs> and I'll define it the way I want. To. I no, see. You're right. You're right. Um, um, yeah, it's. I, I think the problem is we're trying to attach logic to a a character that uh, yeah doesn't have any yeah, and I have to say as as fucked up as that was, um, the like reading that out loud was actually kind of awesome just like because of the way it sounds. It's good writing. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. It's, you're it's, absolutely right. It's it sounds amazingly like like um sonorous and 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 there's like the the beats of it like like reading it out loud just sound i didn't i I copied it because it was fucked up but now that i read it out loud i was like that's just like kind of beautiful like a like a uh yeah i don't know well i I mean i think it's 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 some of the like repetition sometimes really makes things land home Mm -hmm. right and that's what so we have here i can't believe we're focusing on this i hate it so much but yeah um like she she would be in and of and greater and less then she would be in and of and to and through um it, it kind of rhyme i mean it, it does specifically rhyme um it, it's sing songy again it's it's lewis carroly um alice in wonderlandy again um it's her being herself and yeah. it's it's great it's yep. great yep so we skip back to a later point in may's life or an earlier point i should say uh, and she's stretching out a life of dissolution on her inheritance partying with other teens in empty houses yeah we already see a change from the may we knew um back in that first part of the chapter Um, yeah we we have jumped back in time she's not quite the march that we know today but she's a lot closer to her than she was um her her obsession with time still remains she still describes everyone by their age this is where we see like teenager 20 something girl 20 something guy um but but she's also like doing things like blowing up an apple tree with the vinyl disc and like catching an apple behind her back with two fingers, like just like using her power in, in really showy offy ways, but not like no one's looking like she specifically mentions that, like when she catches the apple behind her back with two fingers, like nobody's paying attention to that. Like she's just doing it for herself, for her own enjoyment. Yeah, right. She's this is who she is right yeah. she's it's, she wants to yeah yeah um and i think it's worth pointing out like this this life she's leading now sort of looks like kind of how she imagined lily's life to be like it's just yeah. like fun and and freedom and, and whatever right. she wants whenever she wants it yeah so naturally we now look at what lily's life is yep. now yep flechette's hero commercial uh hero introduction commercial uh which is just wonderfully uh perfectly like pr streamlined <laughs> uh and then the, the the scene of course was ruined by the squawk as the ad shifted to cramming as much merchandising as possible into the last 1.87 seconds um which would normally be like a joke but it's march so no it's literally 1.87 seconds right. yeah. yeah um i mean it is great to compare this to what what, what may was just doing right we have flechette in this commercial like doing using her power over and over again to do cool things um to show how effective her power is um it's similar to march's showy offy way right like like they're both showing off both of them but flechette's showing off is serious business because it's for this like this is me this is what i'm capable of you're gonna see me on the streets this is what i can do 
it it has a point to it. Whereas marches is is utterly pointless. It's not actually achieving anything. And I love that that that's a great way of comparing them. They're both showing off in these two different scenes, but it's different. It's completely different. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I like that. Yeah. Uh, one of the party goers starts to explain to her about clusters, um, which starts March down a rabbit hole. Are you are you proud of yourself for that? I mean, we had we had are to. You, are, you, are you proud? We had to get it in. Are you happy? Are you going to sleep well tonight? Now I will. You just did that. I got it off my chest. Great, great. Let's move yep. on. The cops show up, and this bit got a good laugh out of me. Fuck! One of the oldest people present shouted. One of the sober people. He was tattooed, and he and he'd been the one supplying the drugs. He paused for reflection, then uttered a louder, fiercer, "Fuck!" <laughs> I don't know why. It's great. Just the idea of like reflecting on your life choices and then just doubling down on that. Yeah, anyway. I don't think there's anything analytical to say about that yeah, other than it's just, it's just it's funny, funny writing. It's just funny. Yeah. So we see her using her power a bit to help the kids escape the house when the police arrive. Uh, it's a bit like having a mental simulation that she can scrub through and update as she learns new information. Uh, and the way she understands and navigates it uh, has to do with time, of course. Uh, I can't help but recall here Kenzie's time camera that doesn't use timestamps. Um, not sure if there's like a connection or like the opposite of a connection, but it's interesting anyway. Yeah. Interesting. It, I mean, it could operate on the same general principle, I guess. Um, I mean, it was like, we don't actually know. Do all tinkers do like the scanny thingy that we've seen tinkers do? Like, is it possible that she like was around or was observing March fight in that battle? And like, cause the first time they saw March was before the existence of the time camera. I think, mm-hmm. Yes, it was. Yes, I mean, it was. I, I think that the speedrunners were who she said she got it from. That's true. But I mean, yeah, March was also there. And I mean, t- yeah, I, I, according to like Weaver Dice docs, I think that it's safe to say that scanning is an important part of Tinkers. I mean, there, there may be some that don't have it at all. Yeah, I think I think it makes but, more um, sense for it to come from the, the speedrunners. Yeah. Like it's more their stuff is more. I mean, her stuff is. T- I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. It's cool to think about. Yeah. Well, it was I was more I was more speaking on a thematic level uh, or like oh. a less literal level of, of like Fine. the fact that um, the fact that March's power is scrubbing back and forth through time. Um, but Kenzie's tech does a similar ish thing, but doesn't have a, a, doesn't have an awareness of time, per se. Like the fact that it doesn't use timestamps, it's like. It's like the opposite of that. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm going to yeah. move on. Yeah. No, I like it. It's interesting to think about at least. Yeah. So back in the present, she and her crew pretty easily mow through some defending hero capes with March casually murdering at least one of them by exploding his heart and face. Yeah. So we, we start doing this thing that's going to carry us through the rest of the chapter now, whereas the the present day March uh, cuts are basically like increasingly short and quick, just violence. <laughs> Yeah. And then we cut back to March's story. So we're like intercutting between these two. And it's really effective. I actually like it a lot. It kind of like we're counting down to March getting to her goal as we're exploring her past. Um, And it's delightful. Like it's such a badass and I hate it. Yeah. Right. I I hate that the most badass character in the story is this unhinged villain. Yeah. And it is it is very interesting. Like we're 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 a million words into this book. um, And and the casual killing of someone like this is still like, it's so off putting to me. Like, I mean, we just, we haven't, 
there hasn't there's been death in this story, but not nearly this much like not ne- like I feel like this way in this time in war, I'm like everyone was just dying. Um, I mean, we had Embringer fights, right? So like we, we saw people die and it's just like shocking, like the casual nature of, oh, this guy's just dead now. Yeah. He's just like you stabbed him and then you blew his face up and he's yeah. just dead. Right. Okay, next. Yeah, I mean, it was it was similarly off putting when she killed that one fallen guy. And, right. And it right. was it was basically like an execution. Um, pretty, pretty fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. But at least we didn't like that guy. Yeah, it's true. He's fallen. Yeah. And this guy was a hero <laughs> that we don't know. Yeah. So in the past, again, she has a chat with Homer, who seems like a cool and philosophical fellow now. Uh, he kind of reminds me of Rain, like how the personality bleed seems to have made him a better person, yeah. but in a way that might be contingent or temporary. Um, let's save talking about the name Homer for the name game, I think. Sure, sure. Um, one of the things I did want to talk about while we're here, though, is this idea of the personality bleed, because this is something that we've been kind of wrestling with since its introduction very early in the story. And and this question of did Rain change because Rain wanted to change or did Rain change because new a new personality, new emotions were thrust upon her, uh, upon him. Um, and and we see here that in this cluster, at least people are indeed inheriting things from other members of the cluster. March seems to have Homer's, uh, you know, penchant for addiction. Um, Flechette has gotten March's rigid seriousness, right? That's March was or foil was the fun girl that was having all the fun. And now she is serious. Um, the only thing we we have, like Homer mentioned singing, I think he mentions that he's better at singing now because March was good at instruments and they seem to be like trading these traits and skills. And uh, I think the, the, the implication is if you start using it again, it's going to go away from me. Um, and, and and this is really fascinating because like what, what they say here is we get what the others don't want. Seems like it or what we have in abundance. So. So basically the parts of yourself you don't want, like you don't want, you can push that off of you and onto other people and keep only the parts of you that you do like. And that would be really interesting if that was also applied to Rain's cluster. But we don't actually know if that's the case, right? Like as we as we as we dig further into this chapter, we are going to learn that these clusters have unique gimmicks to them. Um, and we've kind of already seen that with the whole dream room and this could very well just be their unique gimmick and it's not one that extends to other clusters. Yeah. I agree that I don't actually feel inclined to read too much into the fact that like, I I don't want to say like, Oh, their cluster works this way. In fact, if anything, I would be inclined to take it the other way that we learn like, Oh, they literally straight up trade personality traits that's probably not how Rain's cluster works then because it seems right. like none of these clusters work similarly very like uh, uh, other than like some sense of doing things that make the cluster more likely to hate each other. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. They all have a gimmick, but they don't seem to share gimmicks. Yeah. 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 But this is this is this is the part that I wanted to link back to because I, I find this really fascinating because remember when May was waiting for the train she looked at Lily and wanted so badly to have her life, to be that person. Mm -hmm. She looked at Homer and wanted so badly to have his freedom, to have, to to have that life. And then they trigger. And what does their cluster do? It gives her the ability to do that exact thing. It gives her the ability to um, take upon the traits of that person and live the life like that person. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's just, I love it. It's perfect. 
Um, yeah. and, and that, that also really cements the idea for me that this is just a, a her cluster thing because it seems like, um, the cluster, the, the, the gimmick of the cluster relates in some way to the nature of the trigger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I agree. That's, that's exactly right. Yeah. Um, we also have to remember that, uh, or we have to state here that Homer says he's probably going to die here. He's a mercenary. Uh, the enemies are catching up to him and he's probably going to die. He's basically saying goodbye. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's interesting how much I care about Homer uh, within uh, like five lines. And then we learn he's dead soon. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, uh, back in the present, it looks like March has killed seven people and gotten mildly disheveled for her trouble. Yeah. Um, once again, like it's just disturbing, like seven people, seven, seven of the eight people that entered the maze are now dead at the explosion. Um, and again, like these timelines are shorting, um, are shortening, nothing stopping her. She's going forward. She's laughing. Um, it's, it's like this inevitable march of time and, uh, I don't like it, but I like it. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Thanks. I hate it. As as they say. (laughs) Um, so in the past, again, March travels the countryside with Jan, uh, the powers researcher bodyguard duo, uh, and I'm sure they get into all kinds of wacky adventures. Uh, they find the goddess cluster, (laughs) (laughs) their powers already having been stolen by Bianca. Apparently this group was caught up in interdimensional smuggling. Um, and it's a weird cluster. I guess all clusters are weird. It's kind of what we just said, but the, the triggers were days apart in this case. Um, and there's speculation on the part of March and Jan that the portal might have interfered with the cluster formation. Uh, the cluster had an explicit carousel of who was like in charge of the cluster, meaning the agenda of the whole cluster swerved from day to day. Um, so this is something we talked about a little bit. Like, is it correct to say that the goddess cluster has built into it a distinct power siphoning mechanism and that they didn't like goddess didn't actually use the blood and flesh transfer trick. I mean, it's, I don't, it's tough. I think the answer to that is yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also have, we're going to see our friend bill in a bit that is draining them of their blood and, and thusly getting more powerful. Right. So yeah. there seems to be some truth to that. Um, but maybe that's just his way is that way. And, 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 uh, and goddess has her own way, but I mean, I think that the important thing of this to me is that this idea of you can steal the powers from your cluster might just be bullshit. This Mm -hmm. might this this seems to be a specific uh, consequence of of goddesses specific cluster gimmick. Right. Um, And and it doesn't necessarily mean that that is something that is going to extend beyond her that that one cluster. So like this whole thing that we've been talking about for this whole book that like. Uh, Rain's cluster is get wants to take his powers and become more powerful. This whole like Tattletale told this horror story about about the, these things that you have to do and how it works. Um, that could have just been like a misread. That could have just been her reading what um, March wants to do. Um, that 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 could be just what March wants to do to to foil for her mm. own very specific reasons, nothing to do with taking her power just because she's obsessed with her and she just like that's a misread on her part. Um, yeah. Could have been it a, is. Go ahead. It, it is interesting though, because like what we're doing here with March, I think, is like we're 
we're stripping away all the mysterious parts of her. Like, like there, there, all these questions we had at the beginning with March is like, how does she know so much about clusters? She must like have be in tune to something. It's like, no, she just had a, a friend that was like a cape nerd. <laughs> yeah. Just had a regular friend. And it's like, did she, did she find a way to kill her cluster mate and, and absorb his powers? No, he just died from some random mercenaries. Um, because he got he was a mercenary and he got in, in too much trouble with the villains and they they killed him. And it's like all this like this allure around her as this powerful, like mastermind type figure, um, is not she's just kind of this crazy chick. Yeah, it didn't um I, I'm I probably well, it only occurred to me this only occurred to me just now, so I didn't have time to look it up, obviously, but like didn't someone say fairly like authoritatively like, oh, March must have found their third and, and drained him. And that's yeah, why I she think has that, this power boost. Right. Yeah. That was an assumption that they, they made. Yes. Correct. And it's actually like nothing like that. Nope. Homer's just dead. And if she has a power boost, it's because she has Tori hanging out with her or uh, yeah. Ma- Megan. Megan. Yeah, Megan. Yeah. Giving her power boosts when she needs it. Or it just works like any of their clusters where if one of them is murdered, the other get a little more powerful, but I, that feels like a specific rain gimmick because of the tokens though. Yeah. It's like all these clusters are very weird and unique. Yeah. And like everyone has been like, it's so funny that like we've had these, we have the, the story has had these three clusters so far that we've talked about and there's been assumptions made because one of them, something is true for one of them. It must be true in some way for all of them. And, and what I think we're learning here is that it doesn't quite, it doesn't quite work that way. It's a little more complicated than that, that just because something is true for X cluster, it doesn't, it doesn't want mean mm-hmm. Y cluster. Yeah, I've, that's fascinating. I, I, I definitely it's funny because like the more I think about it, the less sure I am about what's going to happen. <laughs> right, right. Um, well, and, the, and and it's not entirely clear here. And, and March doesn't help with that because um, March like is crazy. But like we're not like we do. We do see Bill. Bill is draining their blood and it is working to give them more power. So it seems like there was some part of this um you know, DNA switch mechanism that does actually do something. It actually works. Um, but we're not quite sure if, if that is specific to that, that cluster or not. Right. Yeah. And, and I mean, worth, I guess worth saying maybe that he tries to drain March's blood, but it doesn't do anything. Um, so he just kind of lets her die. And as she's slipping toward death, she has a vision, uh, one, um, Reminiscent of visions we've seen from other capes who skirted the edge of death, namely uh, the Ashleys. Um, mm-hmm. we, we see the onyx and carmine f- crystal facets with a kaleidoscopic landscape, uh, which she sees as being alive with patterns, people, ideas, events. Uh, she can see how there's a kind of slot for Homer, uh, who I, who's you know already dead, and she can communicate with him here. And then there's a slot for Flechette, who isn't there yet. Um, and as she's kind of perceiving this this world or dimension or whatever it is, it, text says she could sympathize with the blood priest who was scrabbling so viciously for this. He told himself it was for power, but he was really after this. She felt he wanted this connection, something beyond the short and fleeting life, a heaven where she would never be alone forever in the company of another running through over under into communicating through shared events and bursts of static riddling each other out. 
So like that's a thing. <laughs> yep. And, and, and this apparently like changes her life. Like this is yeah. kind of reminds me of that, of, of like how see like she saw foil on the train platform and she's like, I'll remember this forever. It's like, this yeah. is a, this is an event that basically changes the course of her life because now this is her goal. Basically she, right. she went from being this, this, you know, um, just aimless, aimless person to being someone who wants this now. Yeah. So yeah, people rescue the cluster from the blood priest and it's unclear whether they're cauldrons or Bianca's or what exactly. But anyway, I, uh, I thought that in my thing, they were cauldron. They were like, they got rid of Bianca and then the rest of the clusters were like, okay, well, we'll just take the power. And they're like, oh fuck. Okay. We'll just put them all together. And that way they're out of the way. I think <laughs> that was my interpretation. Yeah. I think, I think cauldron probably wanted Bianca, um, as their ace in the hole. Yeah. Uh, like they, they wanted her to stay in power. So they, they took care of this problem for Bianca. Yeah. And then they gave her all of her cluster mates. Yeah. So overall, um, yeah, she's changed by the experience. She's now obsessed with reaching this shard heaven where she will have eternity, eternity to wear away the traces of her life in the flesh and submerge herself in connection to these people she's obsessed with. Yeah. So that's, um, that's the end of our chapter here, Matt. Uh, Shard Heaven is back in a big way. Yep. And uh and and March wants to be part of it. And this I mean, let's talk about that a little bit because we've had like throughout the story we've had this concept of the Shard Afterlife, right? Since Snag died, um we we when we were introduced to this concept of something happens after death specifically to these capes. There's this place presumably you're returning the the shard is returning to the source, quote unquote, and um, your personality goes with it in some way because your, your personality is written into the, who you are is written to the shard in some way and it's going with it. And it's like this, this, this joined afterlife thing. And so one of the things I think we have to do when we're analyzing uh, a work of fiction is we look at this concept that's been introduced and clarified here and we say, okay, what does this have to do with the story? Right? Like, like what does that have to do with the themes we're talking about? We've, we've talked a lot about um, the themes of the story in, in this idea of recovery, um, in, in getting better and improving, um, in getting past the, the bad things that have happened in your life and hopefully becoming better or, or at least, um, able to handle that kind of thing. Um, so how does that, how does, how does a, a shard afterlife fit into that? And one of the things that, that I'm interested in exploring, and we'll have to, you know, revisit this as we go through, um, this next arc and, and the rest of the book, um, is this idea of, it's kind of the death of change, right? Like, cause we look at, we look at rain and rain is this character who is, doesn't want to die because he doesn't, he hasn't feel, he hasn't, he doesn't feel like he has made up for the bad things he's done yet. Um, he hasn't earned forgiveness. He hasn't earned redemption. He's not, he's not fully better yet. And, and I feel like this, this concept of shard heaven is like, is the removal of that. Like you're just like, you rejoin the source and you're just that, like you can't change anymore. You're gone. And you're part of this other thing. And like the characters that want that are the characters that aren't interested in recovery, aren't interested in getting better, aren't interested in changing. Um, they're the characters that are just fine with that. A character who says none of this matters. None of this in the world matters anymore because we know there's this other thing. And this is, um, can be a, a pretty interesting, like criticism of, uh, some religions view on, uh, the importance of the afterlife, 
it doesn't have to be, but it can be. But I, I just love this idea of this is like a stagnation of recovery because you don't. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't, I, I, I feel like I want to understand better what the nature of this shard heaven is. I, I agree with everything you just said. Um, the thing that I fixate on is, well, the fact that March is fixated on this aspect of connection mm-hmm. because it doesn't, from, from my parsing of what she's saying here, it's not even necessarily that you're like, they just make like a, a copy of your brain and upload it to the cloud and it stays there forever. It's, it's more like, no. like things happen in shard heaven. You, you, and, and, but, but it's not like, it's not like an, an afterlife per se, where your life continues to be like a normal life. It's like you're gradually sort of subsumed into like a, just like a, the, the way I would phrase it, again, I'm kind of extrapolating, but like the shards is just sort of like spend eternity digesting your mind yeah, and, and like learning, like, cause that's what they're all about is learning, learning, right. Borrowing yeah. from your conflict. So they spend the rest of eternity wearing you away <laughs> into, <laughs> into nothingness in their own efforts to perfect themselves. And I guess in some sense you're like transcendently becoming the shard, but I'm going to take the more pessimistic view that basically they're just using you for like information fuel um, because that's their quest. They don't actually care about you. They don't have any interest in preserving you or making you happy. Like, I mean, and then I go back to snag (laughs) snags, last thoughts of like, and then he realized that he was fucked for eternity basically is yeah. my paraphrasing of it, like a, an endless dream where there would be no rest, basically. Not going to be good, March. It's not what you're imagining, I don't think. Right, yeah. She's decided it's this wonderful, great thing that is everything she ever wanted. It's not. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah I, I think that's absolutely right. And and I think that's, as we as we go through the story, making distinctions between the characters who look at this concept and say, yes, that is what I want, versus the characters... Um, that look at this concept and say, no, and say, no, we, there's, there's work to do here. Like this, these people that are like, like, we've got to fix this world. Like we've got to fix this world. This is the world we have versus no, we don't have to bother yeah. because we're going to be, we're going to be there and it's gonna be fine. Yeah. And that, that is like antithetical to, I think the idea of recovery, right. Is, is that it doesn't matter what I do here. It doesn't matter if I get better. It doesn't matter if I fix the world. None of this matters because I get to go to this other place afterwards that I've decided is better. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, this is how things are now versus fuck that. Exactly. Exactly. Fuck that. Yep. Fuck Lo- you, heaven. I love it. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, name game, Scott Homer. So uh, Homer, ladies and gentlemen that don't live in America, is a nickname for a home run in baseball, which is which is the best possible way of hitting a baseball. Yeah, um, similar to his power. Apparently, he has literal baseball and baseball bat, which he hits, and uh, according to him, pretty much always just kills people with it, which yeah. he doesn't like because he's not like a inherently violent guy. So, could you say it homes back in? That, that's another th- possibility. <laughs> like it's it's a homing it's a homing missile, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think the the I think the primary 
is is Homer as in I mean he's carrying a baseball right. and a bat. So I mean that but yeah it is one of those things that works in multiple cases. Yeah. I was trying to make it work with, you know, the Greek uh poet. <laughs> I tried to do that for about 10 seconds too and I was like, "Scott, what are you doing?" Yeah, I don't <laughs> this is going to be a two and a half hour podcast. Yeah. We don't need to do that. Yeah, right. Um yeah, that's okay. There's probably more to it. There's always more to it, but you know, I, I like <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of lighthearted and funny actually as as it is just being a baseball joke yeah which kind of goes with his character as being like a not, not really a violent guy who's stuck with a violent power yeah um okay so this week this episode is extremely long so yeah um we're, we're not going to be able to do the community spotlight and talk about y'all's answers to the question last no, week let's tell let's tell them the truth matt we were extremely disappointed in all your answers <laughs> i'm just kidding we actually i loved your answers um yeah, last week's question was your favorite example of Victoria's leadership qualities and um, lots of good answers, lots of different things that that not even I thought of. Oh, I don't like how I said that. That makes it like, like well, if I didn't think of it. That's, the point is you guys came up with some stuff that I didn't think of, well, and uh, we liked them. But, yeah, we're, we're running so late. Well, what's funny is whenever whichever one of us thinks up the discussion question, we're like, I think I know what people are going to talk about. And you always talk about like such a broader range than the thing that we had in mind. And that's great. That's what we love. Yeah. So the discussion question for this week is uh, what is your favorite structural trick in a wild bow story? Yeah. So explore everything that he's done in. um, And you can go you can go to Twig and Pact if you want, um, since Matt can pretty much read all those now. Um, I can't. Yeah. uh, I mean, we're not going to read them on the show if you talk about Twig or Pact, but. I mean, I, I know there are some fun ones in there, too. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah. So talk, talk structure to us. I love structure. Talk structure yep. nerdy to me, everyone. Yep. We made the question open ended as possible. So yeah. be creative with that. And that's all we have for you on this week's extra long episode of We've Got Ward. <laughs> you guys are all part of this show. So feel feel free to provide us with advice, questions or thoughts on this week's reading. You can reach out to us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or over on our Twitter account at gotwormpod. My personal Twitter is at scottdaily85. And Matt's is at marchhairdenamail. If you're not already subscribed, we've got Ward. We strongly recommend you do so and never miss an episode. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere else podcasts can be found. And as always, you can find this and all the other shows we do over at doofmedia.com. That includes Deep Impact, an episode-by-episode, chapter-by-chapter discussion of Pact. I think they're moving on to Arc 3 this week, um, and I'm I'm struggling to catch up. I'm going to do it. I've read three whole chapters of Pact now, and I'm moving moving in. And so I'm going to catch I'm going to catch up with the show. And, and I do it. Uh, and I am caught up with the show, and and I am just like delighted that just like the the sh- I'm just like enjoying it more and more every episode which is just great i'm just so happy that's cool so, i mean we're so seeing this, this from exists. a side that we we're seeing this from a side that we've never seen before right like yeah. we've never we've always been on the other end with this stuff and it's it's cool yeah right i finally understand um and if you like any of our shows and you want to support them consider donating to our patreon account patreon.com slash doof media you can donate a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford supporting us on patreon gives you tons of great bonuses like voting in our fan art and costume contests Q&A sessions, access to live streams of our recording sessions, and our excellent Discord chat. Special thanks to new Bidoofs, uh, Wim, Almost Famous, Kim L, Daniel, 
Lucas R and Zeke F all at the $1 level and Goldfish Bowl at the $2 level. Um, wow, that is such a, a ton of people, guys. Yeah, that's so, so nice. Uh, yeah, it's amazing. Melts me. Yeah, thanks. Uh, and as always, make sure you head over to Wildbow's Patreon, patreon.com slash Wildbow, and donate to him as well. This is his world. We are just um, playing in it. You were trying to come up with something clever and you got nothing. That um, That's accurate, yep. It's ironic that playing in it works for being clever this time, though, because it's, it's just a game to march. Yeah, so it uh, I did that on purpose. Mm-hmm. Sure you did. Sure you did. Yeah. Um, we got um, an email right before we started recording about someone asking about like what the doof Discord was. Um, I don't think we've ever like since we did it, we don't we haven't like ever like explained what that is. So uh, every, I think most people know what Discord is. It's the chat program, but um, Discord interacts with Patreon. Um, so if you pledge to us at any level, you will automatically be given access to our Discord chat um, where we talk about got everything like all of yeah. all of the shows we do um a lot of a lot of wild bill work talk yeah. um and and but just some general general talk about other movies and tv and books and stories we like and all that stuff so and scott and i are in there kind of all the time and it's just it's probably too much <laughs> yeah it's, it's, it's i mean it's just really it's it's great like i'm it's it's one of the it's one of the things that I didn't foresee when we started uh, Doof and, and yeah. all this, but it's been a very positive thing. Yeah, I was terrified that we were going to start this thing and like it was just going to be dead and <laughs> awkward, and uh, it has not been that at all. Not at all. So, not at all. Thanks for everyone that hangs out with us in Discord. All right, um, if you cannot afford to donate, that's 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 fine. We're going to miss you in discord, but that's absolutely okay. There are tons of ways you guys can help us out. Um, you can head on over to Apple podcasts and leave us a rating and a review. This week's review comes from Lincoln Mike who gives us five stars and says, this is the first podcast I've really listened to. And these guys keep blowing my mind with how deeply they're inspecting the book. I get close to the end of their analysis of worm and the speculations and connect. I'm getting close to the end of their analysis of worm and the speculations and connections made here. Never fail to impress. Could not recommend this podcast enough. Wow. Thank you, Lincoln, Mike. Um, it sounds like you're really behind on the podcast, so it might be like a year and a half before you hear this. But thank you for taking the time to review us. We really, really do appreciate it. Yeah. Somebody tell Lincoln Mike that we give him a shout out. Yeah. All right. That's all for this week. Uh, we know uh, we now know that Arc 12 is going to be called something. So join us next week for the first part of Arc 12. Heavens. You read that so weird. Like, that sentence was a mess.